We're back with another episode of the One Accord podcast and here with another interesting topic of conversation. We're talking about the sovereignty of God. As it turns out, this is something that sometimes Christians disagree about. And so let's go ahead and bring in our team members for today's discussion. First up, we've got Brother Greg. Brother Greg, how are you? I'm doing great. Good morning, Joe. How are you? I am uh, not quite great. I'm doing not great. Well, just fine. Yeah, doing I just can, fine. That's, that's easily understandable. So, yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> certainly, certainly it is. Uh, and uh, and then we've also got uh, Pastor Eric. Pastor Eric, how are you? Uh, well, I don't want to be too positive, but um, I'm I'm doing pretty well and looking forward to the discussion of sovereignty today. That's right. Well, it's uh, always I good am, to not be too positive. So yeah, no, you we'll let Greg be the resident high, optimist. You'll be disappointed. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. I, I usually am. <laughs> yeah. And for most of my pessimistic friends, you know, they say, well, you know, if you have no expectations, it's very difficult to be disappointed. So uh, set yeah, the bar low. Uh, but uh, no, I, I'm setting the bar high for this conversation. Uh, I'm optimistic uh, uh, to talk about these things. And maybe I'll get better as we go along, Greg. Who, who knows? But uh, as we uh, as we mentioned, the topic of conversation today is going to be on the sovereignty of God. And uh, this is something that I've thought a lot about. I know that many Christians talk about this topic, think about this topic. And I can recall being, uh, particularly when I was in seminary studying these things, uh, I, I spoke with a lot of people who used to tell me that Arminians in particular just didn't think very highly of the sovereignty of God. And so I'm thankful uh, over the past uh, couple of years, Eric, to have been getting to know you. And you uh, are one who certainly takes the label of Arminian upon yourself and you do so hap happily. Uh, that was kind of odd for me because when I was studying, uh, most of the people I knew were Calvinists, and so they would, thought uh, Arminian was almost a, a bad word. But uh, let's kick it over to you first as we talk about uh, sovereignty. Basically, what does it mean to say that God is sovereign, and uh, do you uh, do you reject the sovereignty of God, or would you describe your view as a low view? H how would you describe it for yourself instead of having somebody else talk for you? Well, believe it or not, I am an Arminian, and I do believe that God is sovereign. And my view of God's sovereignty, uh, this is my opinion, isn't high or low. It's just the biblical view. Um, God rules as king over all of creation. Uh, that is the, the basic uh, definition. It's not um, the exhaustive definition, but God rules as king over all of creation. In, in Psalm 103, verse 19, it says, The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over all. And I understand this to mean that God is the supreme authority over the entire universe. Uh, as Psalm 115 verse 3 says, God can do whatever he pleases, and there's nobody uh, or nothing at all that can prevent him from accomplishing his purposes, Proverbs 21.30. Uh, so God is sovereign in that sense. God can do whatever he wants. He has the authority and the power to do anything that he pleases. Uh, his plans stand firm forever, Psalm 3311. And uh, there is no one who is higher than him in power and authority. And so he, he reigns as king over all. Uh, and there's this, as you said earlier, Joe, um, there's this assumption that, that well, Arminians reject the uh, the sovereignty of God, but the truth is, both Calvinists and Arminians agree that God is sovereign. The question is, how has God chosen to exercise His sovereignty? Has He chosen to sovereignly determine everything that comes to pass, or has He chosen to allow man to determine some events by the exercise of His own free will? So I'm I'm really uh, excited to discuss this this topic because 
there's a lot that needs to be unpacked. There's a lot that needs to be clarified. And uh, there might even be some things that just need to be uh, rejected. So um, I'm looking forward to to getting into that. But that's the abbreviated uh, description of God's sovereignty. Sure. Well, I, I appreciate that. And that's a good place for us to kick things off. Certainly, if I'm if I'm hearing you correctly, um, you know, this is uh, at least partially related to our kingdom of God discussion. And we talked about, you know, sovereignty as it relates to nations. Um, but God's sovereignty, there is no one who is above him. He is the the highest uh, sovereign. Um, and so um, it was I missing missing what you're saying. But those those terms, he's he's able to do whatever he wants. Nobody can you know, nobody can tell him otherwise. And he can accomplish all his uh, good, holy purposes. That's correct. Yeah, yeah, God, God is the most high, Scripture mm-hmm. says. That's a very unique title because that's only applied to God and no one else. Yeah. So God is, is sovereign um, in that he rules over all. He has supreme authority, supreme power. So God is, has supreme everything, and that makes him sovereign. Yeah, and so uh, I certainly do uh, look forward to getting into you uh, a little bit later in the episode, maybe uh, that uh, additional question that you asked, how he works out that sovereignty, because that is, I think, probably where— uh, certainly where a lot of people might uh, disagree, but uh, it'd be hard to disagree with uh, at least considering God the most high, that there's all the verses that you mentioned and so many more that could uh, uh, reference to that. But uh, Greg, what about, uh, what about you? You know, you've, you've applied the label of Calvinist, although, um, you know, you're not I a... I think I've specifically avoided applying that label Calvinist. Sure. Uh, <laughs> there is, you are the okay. most Calvinist leaning of, yeah. of at least of the group, but, um, but certainly, yes, you are not a, a typical... Uh, Calvinist uh, in that regard, and so uh, how do you view sovereignty? What What are your thoughts? Sure. Uh, well, t- well, to begin, um, because I knew I was going to be playing the role of Calvinist today, I knew I knew that that was going to be my expectation. I actually brought my uh, RC Sproul mug, and so oh, yeah, well, th- right, there you go. There you there you go. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, so far, and, and the funny thing is, is like you know, Eric picked this topic for today, and. I know that he's very, uh, very eager to argue with me about Calvinist Arminian things. Um, and so as I read the questions that he presented, what does it mean that God's, uh, God is sovereign? I had to chuckle to myself because I know that like, we are not going to have an argument about what does it mean to be sovereign. Um, and so he didn't really ask a whole lot of questions uh, about, about what he wants to talk about, or at least what I think he wants to talk about. Um, and so, you know, he asked for a definition of what it means that God is sovereign. And so very, I say very quickly, took a couple of days and wrote up my own definition of that. Didn't, didn't confer with any, um, any systematic theologies on my Bible. And here's the definition, and we can maybe kick this around that I came up with. I, I wrote this based in first place on the fact that he is the originator, creator, and sustainer of all things, God possesses supreme authoritative rule over the entirety of his creation. By authoritative rule, I mean that God has the unrestricted ability to bring to pass all that he wills and purposes to do. Then I go on, and this is a branch off. I say this, for reasons both mysterious and gracious, he has granted limited sovereignty to many of his creatures. This is displayed by humanity in a manifold ways. First, each is granted sovereignty over self. Then, to some, is granted dominion within the family, church, and civil government. So, as I heard you talk, Eric, I don't think that you and I disagree on 
what does it mean that God is sovereign? I think we're going to have to get into these classical, classic Arminian Calvinistic Calvinist arguments before we start coming to much of a disagreement. Well, certainly, I think that as I listen to your definition and as I listened to Eric's definition, um, yeah, I, although the, the words are slightly different, conceptually it does. It seems like that's almost exactly the same. I don't know. Eric, did you hear anything in that definition that you disagree with? I thought it was an excellent definition, and um, I, I don't know that I would change anything in it at all. So I think that, uh, you know, Greg, as you're uh, anticipating, and Eric, as you uh, also kind of mentioned, it's not in the defining of God as the supreme ruler, the most high, the one whom can accomplish all his will. It is the the questions of how does he do that? And I know, you know, Eric, the second question that you had asked us is, does this sovereignty rule out human free will? Greg, you had a part in your definition that um, I wonder how you would define more deeply uh, when you said that God has granted uh, some sovereignty over self, that, that individuals have some self-sovereignty. What does that look like for you in your view? Um, is that, I mean, are you talking about free will uh, or are you talking about something else? Um, again, I don't want to assume how you would define that, uh, that you put in your definition of that God's sovereignty has uh, extended. He has offered some sovereignty to individuals over their own selves. Yeah. Well, you know, I think it's really important that, you know, you, you just use the term free will. Um, and now I, I'm sure we all think we, well, we all do have some definition of what that means. Um, but what do we mean by will? What, what is will? And what does it mean that it's, that it is or isn't free or, or in what way is it free? Um, so as I understand it, the will is the capacity, the ability to have preference, to express choice, to act upon that choice. Um, and so do humans have wills? Well, of course, of course we have the ability to, to make choices. Um, you know, classic example of, of how this intersects is um, uh, Genesis 50, where, you know, told you, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Here are people, the brothers of, of Joseph, who, who made a choice, did a thing, and, and had a purpose behind doing this thing, but God chose to use that for, for other ends. Now, where I think we're really going to, I don't think we're going to argue necessarily, maybe we will argue about what does it mean that humans have will, we're probably going to argue about what does it mean that humans have free will. Was God holding a, a gun to the the head of, of of Joseph's brothers when they did that? No, for sure they they exercised their will in accordance with what I would say is their nature. Uh, at that point, exercising an evil, wicked um, will. So, I, I'd like to get your guys's definition on free will to make sure we we line up on on what because. As I've observed the argument over the years, um, we have very different, well, people, assume, people argue and assume from very different uh, start, starting points when it comes to free will. Did you want me to give my definition? <clears throat> sure. Okay. Um, well, my, my definition comes from a few different texts. Um, and I think one of the, one of the key texts is 1 Corinthians 10, 13. And you guys know the verse. Uh, you probably are 
quoting it in your mind right now. Um, but I believe free will is the ability to choose between different possible actions. According to 1 Corinthians 10.13, Paul says, No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. So according to 1 Corinthians 10.13, the believer can choose between two options. He can give in a temptation, or he can take the way of escape. The action that he chooses is not determined by prior causes, but, but is determined by the believer alone, and that's what makes the believer responsible for his actions. Uh, furthermore, because the action that's chosen is not predetermined, choosing a different action is possible. That's why God says, uh, well, Paul says about God, um, that you have the option to choose to give into the temptation, or you can choose the way of escape that God provides. And if whatever action you choose, that's not the action you have to choose. And if you choose differently, then your future turns out differently. Uh, so that's that's basically um, how I would I would define free will. But I would really <clears throat> I would really emphasize the fact that. When you're faced with, with different options, you really can choose between these options. Uh, you, you're not determined to choose one or the other. Um, you, you really can decide which one you're going to choose. It's possible to choose either one. And um, in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, uh, I think that verse alone, now there's a lot of other verses, but that verse alone proves it. It says, when you're, when you're tempted, the possibility to give in a temptation is always there. Uh, but the possibility to resist the temptation and take the way of escape is available also. So if God predetermined uh, believers to sin when they do, and we'll talk about that in a little bit because some Christians actually believe that God foreordains sins, uh, which I think is insane. But uh, so according to 1 Corinthians 10, 13, uh, there's the option to give into temptation or there's the, there's the option to take the way of escape. So if, if God foreordained um, believers to give into temptation every time they do, then it makes no sense to say that God also, at that same time, provides the way of escape. Because if, if he foreordained the believer to give into temptation, why pretend like there's a way of escape when there really isn't? The plain meaning is that you really do have two options. You really can give in a temptation or choose the way of escape. Yeah. And I see, I see throughout Scripture, uh, throughout Scripture, God telling people that the future, to some extent, I, I will say this. I got to be careful how I say this. There are things that God has, has foreordained. There are things that have been predetermined. I'm not denying that. Um, I, I've never rejected that. Acts 2, uh, 22 and 23, it says that God predetermined the death of Jesus Christ. That, that event is predetermined. I'm not saying that no events are predetermined. What I'm saying is that people really do have a choice, and their choices to some extent determine the future. Um, there's... 
I have a list of verses right in front of me, and there's no way I can go over um, all these verses. But just, just briefly, um, you know, this is from the book of Isaiah. This is Isaiah chapter 48, and uh, this is verses 18, 18 and 19. And it says, If only you had paid attention to my commandments, then your well-being would have been like a river and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. Your descendants would have been like the sand, and your offspring like its grains. Their name would never be cut off or destroyed from my presence. It sounds as if what God is saying is, your future could have turned out differently. You could have made different choices that caused your future to, to be different. And I think that's really what free will is. It's, it's determining someone's choices. Um, the, the individual determines their choices. And whatever choice they make, that's what um, causes the future to turn out the way that it does. So that's, that's, my, that's my basic definition. We, we actually could dedicate a whole episode just to the meaning of free will and what that involves. But that's, that's basically uh, how I understand free will. Yeah, so I, I wouldn't majorly disagree with anything you just said. Um, my understanding of free will comes heavily from some of the work that Jonathan Edwards did. Um, maybe maybe the, the work is called The Freedom of the Will, or I, I forget exactly uh, the title, but I would definitely commend you to look it up if you haven't read it already. Um, and his argument is this, that that to have a will means to have the ability again as i said to to express a preference and that human beings will always choose that which we find more agreeable more desirable and now you say well that's the case why would anybody ever get martyred well because that person found the idea of going to the be burnt at a stake more desirable than recanting and denying christ um you know I will pick up a slice of pizza over a salad because I like pizza better. Or, or maybe I will pick the salad because I'd rather not, you know, put on weight or whatever. So, um, and we do have that freedom. I, I completely agree. We do have that freedom. Now I think, I think where our, where Calvinists and Arminians, where you guys, um, get into this argument is when you start talking about the fact and I think it's a reality that um, prior to salvation, an unsaved person does not have the, 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 the nature that it takes to make these decisions to please God. Now, to use more biblical language, I'll say this. Um, unsaved people don't have the power to walk by the Spirit, um, to, to do the things that are pleasing to the Spirit. and so. They will make choices. Um, they will express their will in ways that are not aligned with the will of God. Now, does that mean that they never make a good choice? That, I, that's not the argument. Um, do they make some better, some worse? Yes, of course. Um, but when you fundamentally are dead in your sins, um, you have a will that is not aligned with God. When you have been redeemed, when you've been given that heart of flesh, when you're empowered by the Holy Spirit, you will have different preferences then. 
And so your will will be expressed based upon those preferences. And so that freedom is a freedom based upon your nature would be, would be my argument that, that an unsaved, unregenerate dead in their sins person isn't going to have the will. They're bound by their nature to express their will in line with their nature. Yeah, I, I would, I would um, very strongly disagree with Jonathan Edwards' view of freedom, because what he's saying is that, and James White and many others have said the same thing, that you always choose your strongest desire. I think that's obviously not true. You don't always do that. Show As a matter of fact, demonstrate. If, okay, if, if, if that was the case, then every single time your desire to sin was stronger than your desire to give in to the influence of the Holy Spirit, then you, there's no way you could resist sin. You, you, you would basically, resisting sin would basically require that God make your desire to resist it stronger than your desire to give in, which means we have no responsibility in this. We have no, uh, actually, I would even say this, it's an, it wouldn't even be immoral to give in to sin in that sense. Because you're not even, you're conditioned by your nature entirely. And it's, it's not even really. Do you ever, do you ever sin? Yes. You, you do sin. And why do you sin? I sin because for various reasons I choose to. You choose, oh, so you've expressed your will to sin. And that, and that expression of your will in that moment you gave in to that temptation. You've, you chose to do that. Um, like I, I chose had, to do it because the, I rejected the, football... the way of escape. Because there's always a way of escape, according to Paul. Which, said, which right? in that moment was more, which you desired to give in to that temptation more than you desired to, to take the way of escape. I, I... Well, it, it, desire may not even be the key thing. You know, you um, can be preferred. I mean, I, I, you willed to sin more than you willed to not sin in that moment. Okay, but here, but this, but Greg, this is the, this is the issue that I'm I'm raising. If if it's simply a matter of what you desire more, if that's all it is, then your decisions are already predetermined. In other words, if if my if it's if it's my desire to sin more than it is to resist the sin. If, if, that, if one desire is greater than the other, then my, desi- then my, de- my decision is already predetermined. And it makes no sense that. for God to say that's a, that's that not, he gives that's us not a, a way logical, of escape. That's not a logical conclusion. To say, because, it's ba- because my will is what I will to do, then, then I will always sin. That's, that's absolutely not the case. That, that is the beauty of now having a new heart, having new desires, and having being empowered by the Holy Spirit to not make those decisions. But, but see, the word empowered is the key there. That's 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 the key. You, of course, the it's Holy the key. Spirit empower the Holy Spirit empowers you. The Holy Spirit empowers you to resist sin and choose to follow God. Because because he has given you a new heart, new desires, new passions. Um, right, but by having a new heart doesn't guarantee that I will choose the right the right because, decision. Because because we still do live in this 
this sinful flesh, right? I mean, well, and that's and see, and that, and that's it. Because remember, Paul said in Galatians five, he said the flesh wars against the spirit, the spirit against the flesh. The two I are do not the things that I don't want to do, so that you don't do what you please. Yeah. yeah so what? So yeah. there. So it's not. It's not just that. Well, whatever I desire more is what I'm going to do. Okay. I so think I this think is where I, this is where I start off, and I and I was wrong. I said I don't think we disagree on will, but it sounds like we do. Like. I need to hear from you your definition of what it means to have a will to, 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 yeah, I'll leave it there. What do you think? I think think it means means I have, I have the ability to determine the decisions that I make. I am the, I am the first cause of my decisions. It's it's not just the ability, right? It's actually doing it. So what I would say, I would say humans, I would say humans are their will. I don't think my will is something that's outside of my, I don't think, I don't think my will is like my lung or my, you know, heart or my kidney it or is something. The, I, I'd say this. I think I am outworking a outworking of your nature. You, you are a will. Um, I, yeah, it's, my will I, is not separate from me. My will is not separate from myself. When I make a decision, it's not, it's not some, it's not a prior cause in my brain. So it's kind of like based to on, make that decision. So you're saying it's based on your nature then. Like it is a reflection, it is an outpouring of of your nature. That's what you're saying? It's it it's yeah, it's it's who I am. It's I I am a I am a a so if you are in language if that makes you are, sense. If you are dead in your sins, then maybe your will wouldn't be as 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 it ought to be. Is that what you're saying? Okay, well let me uh because you mentioned dead in your sins. I want to I want to um just touch on that briefly. You said, and I'm not sure if you would say it this way because not all Calvinists. Um, and I know would you're you? not. I say would I, you I use kindly, the word Calvinist just in a general kindly sense. stop trying to throw me into a bucket that you then get to disagree with me on. Like we. That's like, why I is, just said. Listen, I said I'm using on, this in a general sense. I'm not saying I, you specifically, but I'm saying I wanna, Calvinists I wanna in make general. A, I want to make a quick point. Right? We are. Is this our 18th episode, Joe? I think that's right. 18th episode, um, which. The average episode lasts two hours. We normally spend at least one hour either before or after um, having conversations. So three times 18 hours. Um, Have you ever experienced me being the banner waving card carrying? No, and I have not. So, so could you kindly stop trying to throw me into that bucket? Like, have I not proven in at least 60 hours of conversation that I'm that I don't fall into that bucket that you want me so desperately to fall into. You have definitely redeemed yourself. Oh, yes. thank goodness. I'm so glad I've redeemed myself. <laughs> so, but no, but don't, but Greg, this is, but this is why I even said that. Okay. I'm not saying that you specifically believe this. Okay. And I'm not even saying you're Calvinist, but what I'm saying is you, you said earlier that you are kind of supposed to be, in some sense, representing the that is the role you Calvinist. guys want me to fill, or at least yeah, you so want I'm me not, to fill. I'm not saying that you really are. You're a the almost Calvinist. you're the almost Reformed Baptist. Confessionally speaking, you are almost Calvinist. <laughs> yeah. So let me let me go back to something that you said. I think uh, you, so you go said this argue earlier. with one of those guys. <laughs> okay. So, um, so Cal- how are we Calvinist. not how are we not dead in our sins? Go go ahead, Ephesians okay. Ephesians two. <laughs> okay. Well. Explaining what the word dead means from Ephesians 2 um, is going to require probably a whole episode. But let me just say a few things about it. One word. The f- 
the, the first thing there, there is a lot there's a lot to that uh, a lot to it but um, some calvinists will say because you're dead in your sins prior to being regenerated you first have to be regenerated and as a result of your regeneration then you produce faith in other words you can't exercise faith as a dead person okay, you, a, a corpse can't exercise faith therefore um, you have to be brought to life, spiritually speaking, in order to exercise faith. Your uh, your cup, your mug, the R.C. Sproul mug, that's what R.C. Sproul taught. And that's what many Calvinists teach. This is objectively false. There is no, the Bible not even one time ever says anything like this. And not only does it not say it, but it says the exact opposite everywhere. I'll give you one example. This is Colossians chapter 2, verse 12. It says, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised, raised up. Okay, there's that same resurrection language. You were also raised up with him through faith, through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. Okay, no, notice what he's saying. He's not saying God had to resurrect you first, and then you exercised faith. He says the opposite. So he we're says now you were we're arguing order saluto through now. faith. Are, are, What's that? You're now arguing order saluto. Is that is that where we want to focus our attention on? Is is order well, saluto? Well, the, I'm, I'm, just, I'm making this is the point I'm making. I'm making the point that you you said are are unbelievers dead in the sense that they? I'm not sure how, exactly how you asked it, but well, can, can you are they unable to do anything? Are they are, are they, they are they a spiritual corpse? No. No, they're not a spiritual corpse. They're they're dead in the sense that they're separated from God, and they can they can beholden do, beholden to a a sinful nature. Um, yes, a sinful nature that has not, a conscience. Not, though. Uh, Eric, did you not hear me express that that they can make choices better or worse? But do yes, I? Yes, and you did say that. You, did, you did, did say but, that. Did I not say that they are not walking according to? This? Do you think that there are? unredeemed, unregenerate, unsaved people out there walking according to the Spirit? Is that your argument, no. Arminian? No, okay. I have, okay. I have never and, claimed that uh, ever. And, no. and, and I never claimed, I specifically counterclaimed, that, that, that people don't, that they can't make better or worse choices. Do okay, I but think, let me, okay, well, I, this, this was a little bit of a rabbit trail, because originally we were talking about you choose your greatest desire. Okay. See, unfortunately, brother, you want to argue with an argument that I'm not trying to make. Okay. Well, I just I just want to be clear, and for our viewers' sake, because maybe our viewers are hearing one thing and, and you're not you're not even saying that, and you're saying something else. Let me go back to something I just uh, that you touched on earlier. And Edwards and J uh, James White and many other people have said the same thing. I'm not saying you align with them perfectly. I'm not saying that, but their their claim is you're you are you do make choices. But your choice is always determined by your greatest desire. You will always choose your greatest desire. And what I am saying is there are situations in which there is no greatest desire. It's just there's two options. You're, op there's the option to give into the flesh. There's the, op there's the option to give into the spirit. If, if, if my desires are not determined by me, and I just have them, then I am at the mercy of my greatest desire in every single situation in which I have to make a choice. 
which means I'm not free to make the choice. It's the desire that's compelling me to make the choice. And my argument is that 1 Corinthians 10.13 rules that interpretation out because it says I really can choose one or the other. I, I, I can give in to temptation or so I can take you the think way that, of escape. You think that text, so as I understand it, your your argument is that text applies to every person that 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 they can escape Christians. that temptation. Christians. Oh, oh, so we're not talking. So listen, that's where the dividing line is. You want to, I I feel like you're blurring the line between unregenerate people and Christians. I agree with you. No, I said believers. I I said believers in the very beginning. Brother, we're, we're agreeing, but we're not agreeing. I agree. Christians who have been given this new nature, this desire to walk with God, absolutely do possess the freedom, the ability to to make that choice to honor God rather than to satisfy the flesh. My okay. argument, my uh, the other half of that argument is that unbelievers don't have that spirit empowering them. They don't have that new nature, those new desires, and the desire to please God doesn't exist within them. Like they they don't they don't care about pleasing God. Now, maybe they're guilted into something and so that highest desire is to avoid the guilt or maybe or maybe like, hey, this is right to do. Like, this is a good thing to do. Like, I, I've been out in the street witnessing to people and I say to them, is it wrong to murder? No, I, I don't think it's wrong to murder. Really? You don't think it's like, so if I went to your house and I murdered your wife, you don't think that's necessarily wrong? Well, no, I don't. Well, what if I, what if I raped her? No, nope, I, I don't think it's necessarily wrong. I said, are, are you lying to me, friend? Like, they're lying I, I don't to themselves. Who, like, well, like, are you, are, are you, are you just trying to jerk my chain or are you seriously telling me you think there's some, some occasion, some set of circumstances where it would be okay for me to go and rape and murder your wife? And he looked me in the eye and said, yes, I believe that. Um, now, is this an extreme case? Yeah, it's an extreme case, but you can't tell me that that person possesses within them the will and desire to do things which please the father if that's the position they're taking. That person is, is a liar. They're 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 deceiving themselves uh, if they even believe that at all, or they're, they're because they're saying because that for they're a, fact. a child of the father of lies because they because well they, sure they're, they're, there's no question they're influenced okay, by okay. say anyone who would take a stand like that is okay. uh, is a is a fallen fallen now, and uh, person and even more yeah. more than that yeah and and so so would you tell me that and, and I don't I hope you wouldn't that they have the freedom to tomorrow morning wake up and start on their own power doing the things that please God. I've never, I would never say okay. that. And I've, so, I've so then never you, believed So then that. you and I are agreeing. But I believe we that are, in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13, talking that to verse is talking specifically about Christians. It's not, the, the unbelievers are nowhere in view there. It's talking Amen. about people that have the ability to take the way of escape, and they're responsible to do that. Um, now, so, as far as regular human nature, yeah, I think I think the, an unregenerate person is enslaved to sin. Although I I would say that being a slave to sin doesn't mean you have to sin every time you get the opportunity. Um, I think that's that's different. And I think you you said um, something that's you weren't contradicting that earlier. You you said something that was yeah, very consistent no. with that. We're we're in complete agreement. So so that's my my argument isn't that we don't have free will. That our will is expressed according to to our nature. Yeah, well, are you talking about believers? 
I'm talking about all all humans express our will according to our nature to greater and lesser degrees. Well, but we but our nature. Yes, we have a new nature, but we also have the the flesh too. So I don't think it's just a matter of you know. There, there's a I don't, I don't know if dual nature. We still is the right, we still have we still have sinful passion. Or okay, let's call it according to our passions. We have righteous passion, a, a saved, redeemed, regenerate son and daughter of God has redeemed has has holy passions, but they also struggle with these worldly desires as well. Yes, right. desires, passions. Yes. Okay, and and so as I come up against any particular choice, whether it be a moral choice, whether it be whatever whatever it happens to be, I am going to choose that which I desire more. If I want to please God in that moment, at that choice, if that overrides my desire, you know, as this temptation, right? You can, the, the verse you quoted, at that moment, at that decision, I can either choose to, to obey, to, to walk in the flesh, to satisfy that desire, or I can choose to, to live according to God's word, uh, be holy, and walk according to the spirit. That is a choice that I have. And that is where I would argue the freedom of my will is to do that. I'm, I'm uncomfortable though, with the word desire and the reason. Would is, you, so, well, so, so tell me will without using a word that's synonymous with desire, passion, um, help me understand what you think of as will without using any of synonyms or anything close to that. I feel like we're playing a board game right now. Um, <laughs> I don't, we're trying to understand each other, right? <laughs> yeah, sure. I'm not, I'm no, not I, trying to trap you. No, I get um, what you're saying. Um, so when I think of desire, there, there are times when I am tempted and my temptation, my, my desire to give into the thought or give into um, whatever's prompting me to, whatever, whatever the flesh is prompting me to do, sometimes that desire seems stronger than my desire to walk in the spirit. And yet I will choose to walk in the spirit instead. Because it's, it's not so much that I, I want to walk in the spirit. Like, I'm like, I'm talking about feelings alone. Okay. I'm talking about my, a desire, a desire that to, to sin. Um, sometimes it feels like the, the desire to sin is stronger, but yet I, I am able through the power of the Holy Spirit to say no to the sin and to give in to, uh, to the influence Thank, of the spirit. Praise God. Praise God. And I, so I, I, I don't, I'm uncomfortable with, with using the word desire because then, then give me another, give me another word for you operating your will. You, ex, I don't, I, let me, let me, will? let me say it like this. I, I would say it like this and it's not a word. It's just a, a statement. I would say, that if the desire to sin is greater than my desire to do otherwise, what causes me to do otherwise is not so much that it's a greater desire. It's that I simply know that it's what God wants me to do. And it's, it's and just would, the knowledge. Would, it's the knowledge. I would piggyback God, off on that. I would piggyback off. I, I would just dot, dot, dot ellipsis. And okay. my desire to please God is more is more desirable to me. It's more pleasing to me. Um, 
it gives me greater satisfaction, greater joy than satisfying whatever fleshly desire. Well, it, it will in the end, but not necessarily in the moment. Actually, it can be painful, painful to, to give in Absolutely. to the, to the spirit. And that's why Jesus said, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. He didn't say, you know, well, but that, that's you know, a choice. Give in, a give in to the desire of the spirit. Cause the, you know, the spirit's going to, you know, give you a greater desire. No, it's, I have to deny myself. And I think denying self involves me resisting my greater desires and giving yeah. into just simply what I know to be the right thing to do. I, I guess I just, I'm uncomfortable from, with desire. My, I get that. I, I understand that. But at the end of the day, we are talking will to will is to make a choice, right? Mm -hmm. To make express operate on a choice. And something is is compelling that choice. It, it's coming from somewhere. I wouldn't say compel. I would say it's it's influencing. There's a difference between so how compelling and influencing. Okay. No, no, no. You're, you're missing. It's to Unless make you mean a choice. Influence. Where does your choice come from? Where do my two options come from? No. No. You Or where does making, my my ability like, to choose? The ability to choose is your will. I'm talking about as as some as two options are set before Eric, and he and he and he settles on this one. What is it that that is settling you on that one versus that one? Me. But but can I ask no, a clarifying question? Yeah. Yes. So I, I think, and I, I have a, a suspicion, and especially as I, I read through these other questions that Eric asked, the third question that he had asked us was, um, does God's sovereignty make him the cause of evil? I have a suspicion that um, when Eric says that it's me that makes a decision, and Greg, as I'm hearing you, that says it's our nature, um, by attempting to uh, maintain that I have the responsibility for my own self-determination. I'm not just a victim of my nature. I'm not just uh, compelled by what I am made to be. In, in some sense, um, that makes me almost like an automaton where I have been, my nature has been determined by my birth, um, by factors outside of my ability. And so then every choice that I make is compelled by something outside of me. It is me in a sense because it is my nature, but it's something that I didn't, I didn't make myself this. Um, and it's some of the arguments that people say, well, I, God made me this way. My, the various things that I like and what I am attracted to and what I, you know, what my impulses are, all this comes from God. Um, my, my suspicion is that Eric is attempting, uh, and Eric, you can correct me if I'm wrong, that your motivation to say it's me that does this and not necessarily my nature that does this is that, that then you are the one who's responsible for your choice. And it's not God that made you this way, but it's you that are the self-determining factor. Whereas Greg, I don't know that you intend it that way, but the language, at least, as particularly from, from Calvinists, that God gave you this nature, and you always act in accord with this nature, and um, there is still, it's usually, at least in the, in, and again, I'm not, I'm not putting these words in your mouth, but in the Calvinists that I've talked to, there's an appeal to mystery, how it could be that God would give us this nature, how we would be dead in our trespasses and sins, but then God is still not the author of sin. Um, and it's just an appeal to mystery, because it seems like if he gives us this nature, and we're compelled by our nature, and like unreasoning beasts, we just are compelled to do that which our various lusts and impulses tell us to do, 
Um, but then God still holds us accountable. There's a, a, again, an appeal to mystery to bridge that logical gap, because it sure seems like if he made me this way, if I'm a robot and he made the program and he installed the program and I act out the program, but then he still blames me for it. Um, that's what I think the disagreement is. But I, I, again, I'm, as I'm listening to you guys and Greg, I don't know that you intend it that way, but I think that's at least what Eric's trying to protect against from based on the way that these okay. types of conversations typically um, go. Yeah. P- perhaps, perhaps that I, I would enjoy getting to that part. If that's where the, the disagreement lies, um, it, it would be good to get to that point of the conversation. Cause I would ask you, Greg, like if it is our nature and especially before Christ, cause there is a distinction between, and everybody's agreed that believers seem to have some additional ability that unbelievers don't. So if I'm dead in my trespasses and sins, I'm not regenerate. I'm not capable of walking by the spirit. Um, in what way am I still responsible for my choices? If I am bound by my nature, which I didn't create, um, I guess that's a question that I would ask you because I'm, I'm very curious how you would answer that because I know how other people have answered, but I'm not sure how you would answer that question. Um, I'd, I'd say something along the lines of, yes, under the federal headship of Adam, um, we stand in the judgment of Adam. We are responsible for, we do bear that original sin and we will be judged for it. You know, it's interesting. Uh, this morning just happened to be, and, and maybe this will drive, I, I'm not trying to use this as an accusation. Hopefully this will drive the conversation forward. This morning I was listening to our podcast that, that came out Wednesday. And, you know, because I was thinking about this morning's conversation, something jumped out at me um, right before, right before the one hour mark or right at the one hour mark, we were talking about um, Satan's temptation of Jesus and how Satan was twisting scripture. And I think we would all agree that the purposeful twisting of scripture is evil, right? Like if, if you take God's word and you purposely twist it and, and we all, we, Eric, you and I were laughing and joking about how we didn't think that was an accident. You know, Satan didn't accidentally uh, twist scripture. He, he was doing it on purpose. And then at the one minute, um, I think it's one, one hour, one minute and 50 second mark, you made the statement you, you, well, you asked the question, you answered. You said, was Satan's misinterpretation of scripture inspired by God? And you said, your aunt, you direct answer to this is, I think in one sense it was. In one sense, Satan's misinterpretation of scripture, which we just said is sinful and evil, was inspired by God. Now, I would, I would say it was, it was permitted to be allowed into scripture. That's what I meant by that. God permitted it to be allowed into Scripture because God wanted us to see how Satan can twist Scripture to the destruction of others, even though Jesus wasn't destroyed by it. So, so your, your point wasn't that his doing it, but rather the inclusion of it in Scripture. Exactly. Was God doesn't, God doesn't okay. tempt anybody to sin. Okay. Actually, he can't. That's not, within his, that's, that's not, that's not who he okay. is. Let, right. let me say, let me back up though, really quick, because I just want to make sure, just for our our viewers, because you guys, you guys, I think we're, I think we kind of get where we're coming from now. Um, there was maybe some mis- misunderstandings at first, but I reject Jonathan Edwards' view and James White's and many others who say that every choice you make is simply the result of your greatest desire. It isn't. Sometimes it may be. That doesn't mean it always is. Uh, we are, we are more than our desires. Um, and I, I am not determined 
by my nature. I'm influenced by it. So there's a difference between determining and influencing. And if, if I am at the mercy of my greatest desire, then I am, because I can't control my desires, I am completely determined uh, to do whatever I'm going to do. There's no free will whatsoever. Um, that's, it's, it's impossible. I, I am an automaton, if that is the case. And, and if I am a, if, if You're I am making a logical leap that, that no, th- those names that you named out, um, you're making a leap that they never in their, well, I'm not gonna speak for James White and I've only, I've. James only White has what, said that I have, okay. I, I watched a video where he said that very thing. He said that, well, I, I, I'm not going to rehash what James White and, and many others have too. They've said that because you're a, that you make choices based upon your desires, that you are an automaton and, and every, every decision is predetermined. Like that doesn't, uh, listen, I mean, maybe not those exact mean, same words, but yeah, that doesn't even make basically. sense, right? Be, that doesn't even make sense, right? Because let's say you have an unregenerate person who desires two evil things or two wicked things. Like I, I, I don't understand a logical leap you're making between I make decisions based upon what I prefer or what I desire. And therefore every decision is automatically already made like that. Yes, because it just doesn't make any sense at all. The decision is made. The decision is caused by my greatest desire, which I have no control over. That is not illogical. That's exactly that is exactly the conclusion you would have to to come to. Who made? No, it's not. Who made the argument that that? Say say what you said. I'm I don't I don't want to butcher it. What they're saying is, or at least this is. I mean, I don't know how you're interpreting it. it. I don't I don't know how else to interpret it. They they are it sounds like what they're saying is you will always choose whatever your greatest desire is. But if you cannot determine your desires, who said that? Who said you can't determine your desires? That's Didn't what they're all... saying. That's how, how can you determine <laughs> what you desire? Well, you Greg, would you say that anybody can determine their own nature? No. So how can you determine your desires how can you make yourself your want something? Yeah, how, how does that even happen? I don't understand. I, I guess I'm not sure I understand why the outcome. Joe, do, did you were you born with a nature that was that desired to please God? No. Okay. Yeah. No, well, I agree. I agree with you. That's something so, that you said. I, no one's so, disagreeing so, with that. So, well, okay, right. but 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 you're making the argument because you've been given a nature. Okay, let's start here. Explain to me what makes your choice, if not your nature. You, you still have not answered that. Well, Eric, step, Eric, what Eric says, I, it's it's I him. I answer and, myself. And so there is okay. a difference. There is, that's, that's why I wanted to ask that clarifying question, uh, is are we determined by our nature, or does our self, in some sense, direct our nature? I, I would ask, a, like... So if an unbeliever, um, and again, I'll just pick myself, you know, because I'm not going to try and pick on anybody else. So I'm born, uh, according to the book of Ephesians, um, by nature, a child of wrath. I do not have a desire to please God. Um, I'm born with covetousness and selfishness, all of these things in my flesh. Um, yet still with a conscience. Yet there is an opportunity for me to, uh, to make decisions, I guess, between alternatives. Mm-hmm. And so. Where does that 
from the beginning, is it like my first choice that I made? Like as soon as I'm a toddler and I, I reach for one toy rather than another one, because then like, does that, where do those desires come from? If not from my nature, I think that that's again, gets to the area. Whereas, whereas what, what Eric's at. saying is that unlike an animal, like an unreasoning animal or like a brute beast, that rationality or something gives us some ability to determine our own choices beyond simply being a product of our nature, which we did not determine. If I'm born by nature a certain way, then it might seem like I have choices. But if my desires come from my nature, then I'm really a slave to my various desires rather than uh, the determiner of my choices. And I think, again, that's where it's, it's you know, because I didn't cause myself to be born, um, and if my nature wasn't caused by me, then I think, Eric, you correct me if I'm wrong, then the question would be, well, then isn't God responsible for all of my choices because he's the one who caused me to be this way? Um, and that's yes. what you're trying to protect against, I think. Most, most Arminians are trying to protect against that, which the Calvinists, like I said, I'll, I'll read the, this is the Westminster Confession. This isn't a definition of sovereignty, um, but I guess people can interpret it however they want to. But it says, God from all eternity did, by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. Yet so, as thereby neither is God the author of sin, nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures, nor is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established. So God makes things that they can't be otherwise. He create. He is the first cause, but then he gives us a, a will and he gives us a nature and we exercise choices by that nature. But the logical question is then, isn't he the author of sin, which they just say, well, he isn't because they know that that's at least a logical question. But then people, and again, you're not necessarily I'm, advocating I'm not this, ready but, to argue for the Westminster. Con right. like, I would have appreciated so knowing I wanna, if I need to make an answer for that. No. So I want to know how you would answer that question. If I am making decisions by my nature, and if I'm doing that, which I desire the most, where do those desires come from? Um, well, we, we see desires coming from, from, according to our flesh, we see desires coming from the world. I'm not arguing that, that um, how we make decisions, and, I, and here's where influence would come in. I would say our, we make decisions based upon our desires, which are influenced by many things, right? Can a if a if an unredeemed, unregenerate person, wicked person, right, wicked, evil person, smashes himself in the forehead and goes, "Ow, that hurt! I don't want to smash myself in the forehead again." Now, is that based upon his nature? No, he, well, his nature that he doesn't like getting smashed in the forehead, right? Um, and so, to the ex, don't hear me arguing for the exclusion of outside factors right um that's why that's why i want to ask you like so if you're going to uh not advocate for that how do you how do you answer that objection and, and eric again i'm not necessarily putting these words in your mouth i'm asking the question and i i think it's a similar question to what you would ask if i'm born a certain way if there are certain factors that happen to me or around me that influence me that i'm not choosing any of those things to happen um, but then I only make decisions based on what I great, my greatest desire is, and my greatest desires are based on my nature and my environment. In what sense am then I responsible? Couldn't I make the case? Well, I, I'm just, I'm just, 
I'm just a product of my circumstances. I was born this way. I was born in this place. These things happen to me. I just do the things that I do. Um, in what sense then am I responsible for that? Um, other than just saying, well, you are like, is there a, is there a, how would you go beyond that to say and explain? Cause Eric's answer is at least there's something in us, even if he can't put his finger on it, that I determine my own choices. To some I am degree. the first cause of my decisions. That if I, my greatest desire is for something I can still choose to do otherwise, uh, that would be a freedom of the will. Whereas it, I haven't read. I think, Jonathan, I think original sin argues against, I am the first cause, doesn't it? Like our, our membership in the federal headship of Adam, our being born in the likeness of Adam argues against, I am the first cause of, of who and how I am. Well, yeah, we're not I'm talking not, I'm about, not talking about first talking cause. About about you, no, no, no. Yeah. A first That's a completely cause. different issue. I just used the exact word that, that Eric used. I am the first cause. He just said that. And now I'm arguing that no, you're, you're actually not of original sin. Not of original sin. No, I'm not talking about original you, sin. But I, I know. I'm bringing it. You said, I am the first cause of me and my, of my decisions of your decisions. And, and again, I'm arguing, no, you're not the first cause that, that your membership, your inclusion in, in the, in the headship of Adam makes you not the first cause. Right. So that's my yep. question. So is yeah. God responsible for your decisions or are you responsible for your decisions? Or is Adam? You are, you are responsible for your decisions. Yeah. How is that the case if my decisions are the product of other causation? That's the question that I'm asking. Or we could ask it this way. And this is a very simple way to ask. Okay. Are your decisions caused by your greatest desires? Which is what, jo which is what Jonathan Edwards said, which is what... Uh, White has said, which is what many other Calvinists have said, is that true? When you make a decision, is it always caused by your greatest desire? I believe so. Okay. Let me, then, then it follows with this question. Can you control your desires? To a limited extent. An unbeliever can. Um, well, whoever, believer, you, unbeliever, oh, no, whatever. No, it, it, it does matter, right? Believer and unbeliever matter, right? Um, if you have the power of the Holy Spirit, it, it, it's, you put, you're put in a different category than the one who isn't, right? It being indwelt by the well, Spirit. Well, true. That's true. Uh, that's, so, that's yes, true. it does. Yep. Okay. Um, Fair enough. Okay, but when you said to some extent, you can control them, or you, to, you can determine your desires. Okay. To, to if, some extent. If that's the case, then it's not necessarily true. Like, if, if you're determining your desires, which I don't think anyone really does, um, or you, you can maybe influence your desires in certain, in certain ways, but ultimately, when you make a choice, it's, it's not necessarily determined by your greatest desire. It's, it's because you can have a, a desire that's greater and then have a lesser desire and still give in to the lesser desire. Okay. 
So I it, don't think de- I don't think desire is even the determining factor. So if, what if, is for like the fifth desire, time? What is the me. self? Me. The self. I, okay, but but you okay. So define self then. The self define is, me. is my will. I, I will. am. No, no, no. Now you're I am my now will. you're now you're arguing circular uh, circular logic. No, because to, I don't. No. I don't think the will is separate from the self. I don't think there's any difference between the two. I well, am no, no, a no, you're real, saying, willing no. person. And I'm not denying that you're saying my will is my will. My will is me and me is my will. That, you, you I'm gotta, being you and, exp- and okay. Yeah. I'm, okay. Yeah, that's, that's well, how I would, it, I would just define it. Oh, fair enough. My will is not something in my brain. That's, that's beyond my control. That's, that's causing me to do things as, as an atheist would believe. I'm not my brain. It, you know, I'm, I'm my, my brain, my brain, my circumstances, my nature, they influence my decisions, but they don't determine my decisions. That's, that's, that's my point. Okay. So um, we've, in the ground that we've covered already, we all agree uh, that there is, um, you know, there's at least some reality that none of us were born in a vacuum, that we are uh, influenced to some degree or extent by things that have come before us, certainly not just including our own family, but even all the way back to Adam and, and what we read about in Genesis chapter three, that we live in a fallen world, that we are born with a, a fallen nature, that this, um, I, you guys didn't necessarily say this, but I, I'd be shocked if you disagree, that our fallenness uh, affects our, not just our flesh, but our intellect, our emotions, uh, and our will, however that's defined. Um, and so we're not born into a vacuum. Um, and uh, unbelievers, and believers are distinct in some regard. Some conversations around freedom of the will, and, and again, we're, you know, sovereignty, divine sovereignty and human freedom, they're, they're, they are always bound together in these conversations. So we started talking about divine sovereignty. And the question is, how did God make us? How did God, you know, in what sense does that sovereignty extend to us? Some uh, would describe, and Greg, you, you didn't necessarily use these terms, so I'd be curious if you disagree with this, because I, I think your language at least sounds this way, but I don't know if it's because I've just had conversations like this with, other, with others, but that an unbeliever's will is in some regard bound, um, that they can only choose that which is displeasing to God. And, and you said, because we don't have a desire to please God, so, so how could we ever choose that which is pleasing to God? So does that mean that we always choose the most sinful thing? No, but we would be choosing those things only within one box, so to speak, of these things do not, like, they don't please God. And so we're, whatever we're choosing is sin to some extent, and uh, we can in no way please him. But then when we become regenerate, and we'll have to save the conversation of, are we, you know, regenerate, does regeneration precede faith or does faith precede regeneration? We'll, we'll save that conversation for another episode. But we are regenerate. Now our, our will is freed so that we can do the first Corinthians 10, 13 thing, or we can do the, the Romans six, seven, and eight thing where I, I, by the spirit can put to death the deeds of the flesh. And I'm no longer bound to do that, which is displeasing to God only, but now I'm free to actually do that, which is pleasing to God. Do you believe that an unbeliever has free will in the sense that they are free to choose that, which is pleasing to God? Cause I think that that's I think at the heart of Eric's question is that everybody makes choices, but then the Christian then has this extra ability to even do that. And I, Greg, the way you describe it is that because we have a new, maybe it's part of that new nature, 
part of that new will, but that all of a sudden this desire to do that which pleases God begins to supersede everything. And maybe that's what Jonathan Edwards' argument was. I haven't read that book. I don't watch any James White videos, so I have no idea what he says. Um, but, uh, you know, do you think that by becoming a believer that our will is freed in some additional sense, that now we're able to choose that which pleases God? And it, would you just say that, well, now it's the desire to please God which that can override those other decisions or would you articulate it differently than that? Cause I think we're, yeah, I would, I I would articulate it differently for sure. Um, understand this, um, perhaps by saying that which pleases God, we're talking about two different things or we're talking about it differently. I believe that, that a person or a group of people, a society can come to the decision that it is bad to murder and rape or whatever steal like you can come to the decision that it is that it is a bad thing to steal from your neighbor and i believe that a unregenerate person can come to that conclusion i don't think you need to be regenerate to come to the conclusion that that stealing is bad which happens to be sure enough that which pleases god not stealing is a thing that pleases god I don't think you have to have a redeemed nature. I don't think you need to have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit to come to that conclusion. Um, which again goes back to my original statement many minutes ago that you can choose that, that an un, that, that an unbeliever has freedom of will, has freedom of choice to choose things that are more or less um, good things or more or less bad things. Um, good so, in the sight of God? Like, you think that unbelievers can do that, which is good in the sight of God? See, that's, again, that's where our, we're talk we're starting to use that language makes our conversation more difficult. Well, let me do answer you, that. No, can can uh, I finish? Or, sure. No, go, go, ahead. Ahead. go No, go ahead. I, I just thought you were done. I thought that's why I, that's why I jumped in. Um, I, I, I would say that I think unbelievers, uh, to some extent, can do some things that are pleasing to God. Uh, not the way a believer can, um, but they have a free will. They have a conscience. Uh, they have reason. Um, they're able to believe in God. They're able to know about uh, about God's nature somewhat through their conscience. They're able to make moral decisions. Um, actually, just one example of this. This is in Genesis chapter 4. Uh, this is uh, the story of Cain and Abel. And in Genesis chapter 4, uh, verse 7, this is prior to uh, Cain killing Abel. And Cain, it, it's implied that Cain is struggling with sin. He's struggling with this temptation to sin. Um, and in, in uh, Genesis 4, verse 7, it says, If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. It sounds as if God told Cain, who, as far as I can tell, was a wicked man. Uh, he said, you have two choices. You can choose to resist the sin, uh, or you can choose to give in to it. You can choose to uh, kill your brother or not. That was up to Cain. Uh, and, and God even said, if you resist that temptation, you're doing well. Now, doing well, I think that's from God's point of view. It's, it is good that you resist that temptation. That's a good thing. 
Uh, so that's how that's one example. There's many others, but I, that's that's how I would answer. I don't believe an unbeliever can please God the way that a Christian can. Um, of course, I don't believe that, and I believe that that an unbeliever is, of course, the the dominant force in their life is their their sin nature. But I don't believe that it's immediately so dominant that they can't ever choose to do otherwise. Yeah, to answer the question, Joe, um, I do not believe that an unbeliever will ever get the approval of God. But I do right. believe that that an unbeliever can not steal. And hey, yeah, that's that's a good thing. And that that is a thing that would be approved by God, though that person has not been approved by God. That's fair. And so um, maybe if we move on in the conversation to this this question about um, you know, God's, does God's sovereignty make him the cause of evil? Um, and, you know, this is another demonstration. Of it. We, we bring in speculations from Jonathan Edwards, who was clearly a brilliant brother from the past. Um, but we bring in, you know, some of his, you know, definitions, I suppose, or, or if we bring in James White's or anybody else's, if we, as soon as we go beyond the text, we, maybe we begin fighting about things or arguing about things that um, maybe aren't helpful. So in the scriptures, you know, Eric, you just gave us a, an example with Cain and Abel. It seems like we could just give countless examples that, um, you know, the one who sins is responsible for their sin. It's their fault. They're the one who bears the guilt. Um, there's never really any hint of saying, well, I mean, is it society that caused you to do this? Or is it, um, you know, is it your, is it your nature or, or something else? And, you know, there, it seems, uh, at least, that the logical conclusion of some of the ideas that, well, God has just made us a certain way. He is the primary cause, um, and our natures are determined by something other than us, and we are a product of, of the, um, the environment in which we're, we're raised. Um, there are some secular psychologists and others who would try and begin to say that someone who commits a crime, that they're not a perpetrator, they're a victim, because they are just simply acting out uh, the, you know, the circumstances that they were born into. And so we need to then try and fix all of societal's ills that the responsibility doesn't lie with the individual. It really relies with, with all of the other causes. Um, whereas what I hear Eric, at least strenuously arguing for is no, we are, we are in some sense, we are the bearer of our own guilt. I can't blame Adam. Certainly Adam's put us in a mess, but it's still my fault. When I sin, it's my fault. I think that's what I hear Eric saying. Greg, would you put it any differently than that, or would you add different nuance to it than Amen? Okay, so then that's a foundation that we agree on. That's then the question that I suppose is interesting. If God made us a certain way, if we are born with a sin nature, if we are born into a world that is filled with sin, in what sense or how is it that then we are still responsible, or or is God responsible? Because unbelievers say this all the time. You talked about witnessing. I witness to people all the time. I go, God made me this way. Um, God, in some sense, did make us all, but but is that an excuse that people can say God made me this way? So this is this is how I act. This is what I this is what I do. This would be an I believe this would be a good question if Adam and Eve were born in sin. If 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 God had shaped Adam, breathed life into him, and said, "Here you go, you sinner. The the ground is now cursed from you." Um, I believe Adam is the ultimate example of the the freedom of of man to exercise sovereignty that God has given to him. Don't do this, said God. 
I'm going to do it, said Adam. And, and therefore, all of his progeny is now born in this sinful condition. And so it is very tempting to look at me and go, you know, to, to want to start here. Well, it didn't start with you. Um, it, it started with Adam. Sorry that you're a son or daughter, you know, son of Adam or daughter of Eve, but this is part of the baggage you now, you now have to carry. And it would be ultimately unfair if God didn't provide a way for us to be redeemed. Like, not unfair. It's not the right word. Like, um, don't want to use that word. Um, it would be ultimately tragic. Unjust, God, maybe? Un, no. Would it be un... I, if God didn't provide a way. No, I don't even think it'd be un, unjust. Um, I want to think about that deeper. It would be ultimately tragic if God didn't provide a way for us to be redeemed, but he has. Uh, let, let me, um, if I could, let me back up and um, give a reason for why so many Christians believe that God sovereignly determines every single thing that comes to pass, even human choices. That probably the key verse that's used to support this idea is Ephesians 1.11, and it says, Also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. And so many Christians read this, and they, they look at the words, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to mean that every single thing that happens is caused by God. That could mean um, the weather. That could mean, um, you know, accidents of various kinds. And it even some, some would even say that it, it means human decisions. God determines every single thing that happens. This is, I would say this is probably the key passage that's used to support that view. That's, that, this is why some Christians believe that. It'd be interesting to hear somebody who holds, like, I would appreciate hearing somebody who thinks that is the, the ultimate source text for that position to argue that. Well, I, I've, I've because studied the subject I don't believe quite a bit, and says. this is... I'm not, okay. I'm, not, I'm, not saying, I'm not saying you have it, Eric. I'm saying it, you're presenting somebody else's view that you disagree with, and that's great. We can do that all day long. I would just, because... As I read this, that's not what I hear. I hear that hearkening back to Genesis 50, where, where Joseph's brothers decided to do someone, do something, and they did it for purposes of wickedness, but God worked it for good. Okay. Well, I, and I, I appreciate that. And, and I wasn't saying, Greg, that you, that you interpreted the verse that way. I was just saying I've heard people um, interpret it that way. Uh, so my my question is, what does all things mean here in Ephesians 1.11? And this is how I understand it. Um, I don't think all things here means everything without exception, and I believe that for a few reasons. The context is dealing specifically to things pertaining to the church, not to literally everything in the universe. And the words things in the heavens and things on the earth in verse 10, it, it kind of makes it sound like Paul is referring to every single thing in the universe, but I don't think the words things in heaven and things on earth necessarily refer to everything in the universe because later in Ephesians 3.15, Paul referred to the church again as uh, in heaven and on earth. So I, 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 would, I would be cautious. Um, I would be hesitant 
to interpret all things in Ephesians 1.11 to mean every single thing without exception. I think the context makes that suspect. And I think um, we don't, we're not, I don't think we're obligated to interpret it that way. I know many Christians do, and I'm not saying they're, they're bad for doing that, but I, I just I don't see a, a, a really strong reason to believe uh, that that's what it means. Now, this plays into free will. Of course, because if God really does determine every single thing that happens, even human choices, um, then you, know, you have to wonder why later on in Ephesians chapters four through six, does, does Paul give all these commands and warnings and urgings to the church? It's as if he believed that God doesn't exercise his sovereignty in a way that eliminates human free will, because he's telling the church, make sure that you're obedient to God. Make sure that you are not living in sin. Uh, make sure that you're loving people. I would appreciate so, at some point in the future, Eric, if you could send me some resources where where you hear people arguing that every single decision is is predetermined. Um, I'll, ma- because- I'll mention one right now. I'll actually give you one right now. Um, and I don't know that I want to mention the name of this ministry. Just send it to uh, me later. Fine. Yeah, I'll send it to you later. But let me let me quote. Um, I want to quote an article published because on a very well known Christian Ministries website. This ministry is very well known, um, and I'll I'll send you um, the link later on, Greg. Uh, I don't want to reveal it here. And by the way, let me just let me just say something too. When I quote when I when I when I say that I disagree with James White and and uh, Jonathan Edwards, I am not saying that these aren't godly men. I'm not saying they're they're evil. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not saying anything about their character. I'm just simply saying I disagree with their conclusions on this issue. So I want to make that very clear. I'm not demonizing them. I'm not condemning them. I'm just saying I disagree with them on, on the issue of free will. But according to this article, uh, quote, God even governs the free decisions of human beings, including our attitudes toward others. More problematically, God even foreordains people's sins, end quote. Now, the article includes examples of God hardening men's hearts. And, of course, Pharaoh is mentioned. Sihon, king of Heshbon, is mentioned. And they they quote these examples to show that God foreordains people's sins. Um, And I want you to notice that if... If you're if you're going to use examples like this, you have to make sure that you're considering the context, because it, if you just take a quick glance at these verses, yeah, it, maybe it can sound like, well, yeah, God wanted them to, you know, God just wanted them to sin, so He hardened their hearts. But notice that both Pharaoh and Sihon were wicked before God even hardened them at all. When we when we look at when God hardened them, it was so their after, nature was wicked. You'd say. Yes, yeah, they had a, they had a they had a uh, they had a sinful nature, um, but but more than that, they were they were very wicked men. Uh, they they had been hardening themselves prior to God hardening them. The verses don't say anything about God foreordaining the sin they committed before they were hardened, but only that God hardened them at a certain point after they had already been sinning. So God's hardening of these men can be understood as a consequence of their former sins, not causing them to sin from the start. And I want to I want to say something too about the word harden, because 
people don't even know what this word means. The word harden in the Hebrew, and for example, Exodus 4.21, that talks about Pharaoh. The word harden in the Hebrew, it means to strengthen. And the implication is that hardening involves furthering a pre-existing condition of the heart, not creating a condition from scratch. So when we think of hardening, it's not, it's not something that God does right from the beginning to make sure people sin their whole lives. Hardening, the idea is to strengthen what's already going on. It, it, it's furthering a pre-existing condition, or we could say process, that's going on in the heart. That's the idea here. So to, to use these men as examples of God foreordaining sin is very misleading. It, it doesn't even consider the context. And, um, and we, need to, we need to be cautious when we're making these bold claims. Because it's, this stuff is, is so, commonly, um, so commonly misunderstood. And uh, so I, I just, I just want to say that that's, that's one example. There are many, many other examples of this. And usually, you know, from my experiences, usually Calvinists are very embarrassed to admit this. And so they'll really try and work around the issue. Because I remember uh, in a debate between William Lane Craig and James White, uh, William Lane Craig just outright asked James White, do you believe God determines sin? And James White would not directly answer it. Uh, it said he, he, he was trying really hard to avoid an, uh, answering the question, and I can't blame him. I, if, if I was in his position, I would, be, uh, I would be doing everything I could to not answer that. But that's, uh, if, if someone's going to make the claim that God foreordains everything that comes to pass, then how, how, is it, how can they escape the idea that God is the cause of all of the evil and wickedness that happens in the world. And one of the biggest reasons why I think this is impossible to accept is that Scripture, over and over again, all throughout the whole Bible, Scripture teaches that God experiences sorrow and anger because of human sin. And if God sovereignly determines everything that comes to pass, then why would he ever experience any negative emotions? Why would, he, why would God ever be angry at someone who sinned if God is the one that foreordained their sin? Uh, it's, like, it's like getting mad at, I don't know, getting mad at a, a painting that you painted and smashing it to pieces. It, it, something's off here. Um, well, it's my, the, it's my understanding that that's ultimately where the doctrine of impassibility comes from. And, you know, we've, we've talked about that just briefly. Uh, uh, all of us have expressed that we don't hold to that. Um, but Eric, my, my experience is slightly different than yours. Um, like you, not unlike you, but like you, I have met and discussed and read, uh, and heard many Calvinists, um, who do go so far as to, I mean, that's what the Westminster confession says that God ordained everything. It's all unchangeable. Nothing could be otherwise. Nothing could be different. Um, and the first text that they cite, uh, at least in the copy that I have here is Ephesians one eleven. So it is the first verse that they go to that God or has ordained unchangeably everything that comes to pass, which would include even the sinful actions of human beings. Um, however, that's why the paragraph continues, yet so as not to be the author of sin. And so um, in my, what, is, what is unlike your experience is that most of the Calvinists that I talk to are not embarrassed to talk about that at all. They um, typically just say God is sovereign. They'll quote from you know, Romans 9, 10, and 11, you know, uh, who are you, O oh man, to talk back to God? 
um, you know, can the, can anybody object to the, to the uh, potter? Why have you made me this way? Um, and so God is perfectly just. And typically, like I said, that's where the appeal to mystery is. All the systems appeal to mystery somewhere. And in my conversations, usually with Calvinists, this is where the, the appeal to mystery is, is that, um, God has sovereignly made everything. Uh, everything is worked out perfectly according to his will. We are, because we are like a painting and he is the painter, we couldn't really influence him in any negative way. We couldn't cause him to be upset or angry. Um, so all of the emotions are anthropopathisms. It's just human expressions of emotions that we've attributed to God, but God doesn't really feel those things. And that becomes the natural conclusion of many of these, um, at least the people that I've talked to. It doesn't sound like Greg is making that argument. And so, you know, again, I, I imagine that if anybody's watching this that is more on the Calvinistic side, they're, they're probably frustrated that we don't have somebody advocating more for that position on God's sovereignty um, because it sounds like all three of us reject that. And, um, and the question that I was asking you, Greg, um, you know, I think we all would also agree that the other side is incorrect. We're not born with a clean slate. We're not born morally neutral. We're not born so that we can, you know, have the simply the ability that we can all just choose to to serve God from the beginning and love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that um, we're not in some sense influenced by our own sinful nature and in some sense influenced by the the sinful world in which we reside and by the decisions that, that Adam and Eve made uh, going all the way back to the very beginning. And so um, in what sense then, you know, are we responsible and how is God not responsible? Can we do that? Can we define that without appealing to, to mystery. Um, and it sounds like that's what you're trying to do, Eric, at least to me, is that you're saying, you know, I am responsible. And um, that also sounds like what the Westminster Confession is trying to say. You know, we are responsible. The question is how we end up getting there. Um, and so ultimately, the, the positions, although with all the fighting that happens and the disagreement that happens, there are certainly big areas of disagreement, but there are some main key points that people want to articulate and, and maintain. God is sovereign. Nobody's above him. He is the most high and we are responsible. The question though, is then if he made us with that nature, is he unjust? That's why I asked you that question. Like, is it, is it unjust to punish someone simply for working out the nature that, that God gave them in the first place, especially if things couldn't be changed? Um, if, you know, cause this goes on to talk about, you know, God's predetermined certain people to go to hell and other people to go to heaven. And so if that's, you know, we're, we're getting into all these other related issues of election and, and, um, and so on. Um, but Greg, the, I guess I'm a slightly surprised that maybe you, you haven't heard more Calvinists talk that way. I, I had to tell a guy, I, I used to be on this devotional thing. He sent out a devotional that, um, you know, said exactly with the same thing that this ministry that you're quoting, Eric said that the God, isn't it amazing how God ordains even our sinful actions because these are the things that please him and that he is most glorified by, you know, causing us to sin so that then we can repent of these sins and so that he can discipline us for these sins and the lessons that we learn. And it just seems so strange to me to read that God would be pleased with sin when everything in scripture I read says that he is displeased with sin. So the idea that God would be angry over sin, but really he's not because all of these things are exactly as they would be. That in Genesis 50, even your example, Greg, that he even determined that they would do that so that, you know, so, I mean, he, he was working in all of these things, not just after the fact, he's not responding. Almost every Calvinist I would talk to would be, God is never responding to human actions. He is the primary cause because, um, and I guess I would be curious well, there, how you would there define are that. Some you think he's responding? Well, um, 
yes, um, I believe that there are many instances we can turn to in the Bible where God has responded. Um, we should hold on to the fact that that when we use the word cause, Joe, this will be very familiar to you at least, there's more than one way in which we can use the word cause, right? Um, God is the instrumental cause through which something comes to be. And if there is something, it was instrumentally caused by God, yes? Satan was caused instrumentally by God. God yes is the no. creator of, of and all originator things. of all so, things. Yep. So, so he is responsible, in some sense, for all things. Yes? Because he created it? In some sense. In some sense, yeah, agree. Um, we could, we, maybe we would go so far as to say God is the final cause, that for which something came to be. All things were are created for the glory of God, whether, whether those are uh, articles meant for destruction or or articles for for honorable use yes or no what, what when you say vessels what are you talking about i'm i'm hearkening back to biblical language where 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 some things were created for for destruction and some things weren't yeah but we need to we need to look at the context of those verses before you say yes or no i mean in one sense yes you're right it does the the, the bible romans i don't mean it in every that. sense i'm i'm meaning it in the sense that i'm talking about right here that god is the final cause that for which something comes to be sure can, that, okay. can be, that can be yeah true. i i've i've deviated already i'm not i'm not with you anymore um fair enough and i it's it's the the nature of how it is that we make choices i i believe that god in his sovereignty. And I, I, I like your language, the definition that you, uh, you know, shared at the beginning of this episode that he has delegated in some sense, you didn't use the word delegated, but he's, uh, he is sovereign and he has somehow given sovereignty to us. He shares um, his sovereignty. By that, by that happening, as soon as that happens, he is, I mean, again, I, we the, bear the language, we have to be very careful. I, by him delegating or giving me sovereignty over my own decisions, now I am the one who's responsible. Now I'm responsible to him. I'm accountable to him, but I in no way can tell him. And I think we would all agree with this. Can be, well, God, you know, you gave me these choices. I chose badly. So that's on you because you gave me the opportunity to choose. That's not his responsibility for the way that I use the sovereignty that he's given to me. Um, it's my responsibility. And so that's why he held even Adam accountable, right? He came and he gave them some choice. And when Adam tried to blame God, what's this woman you gave me? And she tried to blame us. This, this serpent deceived me. God doesn't play any of those games. And he doesn't go, ah, it's not my fault for doing this. And so, you know, in order to preserve those things, I think we all want to preserve that. And so I would be very careful to say God is not the author of sin, just like the Westminster Confession says. Um, but I do not believe that God picks for me. I don't think that he makes my choices for me. And it doesn't sound like either of you guys think that either. So um, if we had a, a, a full-blown Calvinist, someone who is happily in that bucket, um, for example, maybe if Mike was on here, I think he would articulate it differently. And I, I'd be curious to hear what he would, you know, what he would say. Um, and so for any of our Calvinist viewers who are watching, um, we're sorry that we don't have uh, someone who articulates that more full-blown uh, Calvinistic viewpoint. Um, You're not sorry. I, Stop it. No, I mean, I mean, I'm only doing what was foreordained from eternity past and is unchangeably uh, occurring in real time. So, could you have done differently? I couldn't have. I mean, it's impossible. Um, yeah, as far as let me say something about free will, because we keep talking about free will, and there, some of our our viewers might be thinking, okay, well, where in the Bible does it say that people have free will? You guys keep talking about free will, but what's your biblical evidence? 
there's probably a thousand texts, but let me just, for sake of time, mention a couple of them. First Corinthians 7.37, but he who stands firm in his heart, being under no constraint, but has authority over his own will, and has decided this in his own heart to keep his own virgin daughter, he will do well. Philemon 1.14, but without your consent, I did not want to do anything so that your goodness would not be in effect by compulsion, but of your own free will. So scripture does mention free will. And notice that, the, that it's, it's described as you're making a decision that doesn't involve being under compulsion. It's not compelled. It's a, it's a free decision. You are the cause of your decisions, and therefore you're, the, you're responsible for your actions. And let me, uh, if I could, now that I'm the one talking, <laughs> I'm not trying to hijack you guys um, at all. Uh, Joe, I want to go back to something you said a while ago. You were talking about all of God's emotions in Scripture are, you know, they're, they're I think you said anthropopathisms or, or anthropomorphisms that's the, that's or something. The, that's the $5 theological word, yeah. Uh, okay. Human, yeah. human emotional language that is not, I don't hold to that view, but that's. That no, I know it. you don't. I know you're, you're, you're denying that. Um, it, see, notice that if you if you are reading the Bible through a Calvinist lens, you have to deny the way that God is described throughout Scripture. If God expresses anger, you have to say, "Well, no, God wasn't angry there." Or if God is uh, grieved, you'd have to say, "No, God really wasn't grieved." Uh, and my my issue is, if these verses are not accurately describing God then they're not revelation. They're not revealing anything about God. As a matter of fact, not only are they not, are they not revealing anything about God, but they're actually portraying God in a way that is not consistent with the way he really is. It's almost like if, from a Calvinist point of view, God is putting on a facade throughout Scripture. He's pretending to be angry when he's not. He's pretending to be grieved when he's not. He's pretending to be hurt when he's not. and. I, I think we. I just want to interject do. and say for anybody listening, be sure to understand that when Eric says Calvinist, what he's talking about is the is whatever happens to be the modern manifestation of of Calvinism right now, right? Like he, he's taking a group of of very loud voices right now and trying to distill their thought, um, and it may or may not be directly um, descended from like not necessarily being pulled directly from what Calvin did or didn't write. Well, Calvin is the one that appealed to the, all the mysteries. Uh, Cal, Calvin actually is the one maybe that emphasized the mystery stuff more than anybody. And what I would say is these things are mysteries if you're reading Scripture through a Calvinist lens. If you read Scripture through a different lens, the mystery is solved. And the reason is simply because if the Bible Arminianism, says God is grieved about... Because Arminianism answers all mysteries, so... Arminianism all, and Calvinism no. are, are the same. I mean, it was all the same camp arguing about these things. They all, they all share a lot of the same uh, presuppositions. But I'm talking about specifically when it comes to God's emotions in Scripture. If, if, you, if you take, I'll just say my view, okay? And my view may be right, may be wrong, but if you take my view, when I read about God being grieved... I just I just take that to mean God really was grieved. When it says God's angry, I take that to mean God really was angry. 
in Jeremiah chapter, was it three? When, when God cried out to Israel in, in agony, you know, I thought, I was, I was hoping that you would call me father and not turn away from me, but you did turn away from me. I take that at face value. God really was disappointed. Did he foreknow they were going to do it? Yes, he predicted it before. But the fact is they didn't have to behave that way. And that's why God was disappointed. The whole, all, all the Old Testament, when it talks about God being in agony, heartbroken, uh, even describing himself as a victim at times, I take those things at face value because I think that things really could have been different. And the reason things could have been different is because people really do have a free will. They can really choose otherwise. They don't have to rebel against God like they do. And can I that, can I ask? Because uh, Eric, you've affirmed that a couple of times. I'm interested to hear, yes. Greg. Would you would you affirm and agree with what Eric said that things could be could have gone differently in the past? And do you think that there is you know there's um, I don't think any of us are open theologians. I will expressly say that I am not an open theologian. But do you think there is some openness or some ability for the future? Like, do you think there are different ways that the future can go? Or do you think, no, the, the past happened exactly as it was determined. The future will happen exactly as it's determined. So I, would you affirm or deny what Eric just said about, like, things could have gone differently in the past? And I would anticipate, Eric, you think things could, there are different courses towards the end, uh, yes. unless I'm misunderstanding yeah. you. Um, I have, understand that in my view, we are treading upon the mysteries of God. In that, like, we're talking about, like, don't smirk and like, there are some things about God and about how he operates and about what he, what he knows and like that we don't know. Is Do you there disagree are mysteries. I don't deny okay. there are mysteries. All right. So, so don't smirk when I say we're treading upon the mysteries of God, right? This is not a mystery, but I think there are mysteries. Yes. What? I haven't even finished my statement and you're already go smirking ahead. at me. Right. Um, go, go ahead. Go ahead. Greg. I, I have no problem believing that other courses, if other choices had been made, other paths could have came, could have been taken to get to, to the Messiah, to Christ. Now, I don't, I don't think you would have gotten a different Christ. I don't think you would have gotten a different Messiah. I think Israel could have been more or less obedient. Yes. Um, now, what God knew about that, I don't know. Um, that's where the mystery comes in. Um, do I think that Christ is going to return no matter what choice I do or don't make and how faithful my family is or how, how obedient my church is. Do I think Christ is returned? Absolutely. Do I think we can be less faithful? Yes. Do I think we can be more faithful? Yes. Do I think that, do I, do I have any problem believing that God knows exactly what's going to happen? No, no problem at all. Do I have to explain all that? No. So I'm happy with it being a mystery. So that's, and do you, do you, um, Greg still, do you, in all the, the, you know, I know you're a very well-read guy and you talk to a lot of people about theology. Um, do you, th I mean, my understanding of, of, you know, quote unquote Calvinism um, is similar to Eric's and I, I'll be, you know, be perfectly open. I haven't sat down and read the institutes. I, ha I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm doing exactly what you said. I'm responding to the loud voices of Calvinism in our modern day that tend to speak about Calvinism or, you know, you know, represent Calvinism. I was trained at an institution. Most of my professors were, I think, Calvinistically leaning. Most of the books that I've read, the systematic theologians, guys like Wayne Grudem and Dr. Norman Geisler, these are, um, these are Calvinists of some degree, form, or fashion. Um, and so much of my idea of Calvinism is, is through reading those things. 
I think all those guys would disagree that, that, you know, because God knows these things in order for him to know them, it makes them that they couldn't be different. Uh, and so if they couldn't be different, no, the, the path to the Messiah was exactly as God ordained it. And the path to the end, they would say the day is fixed, right? He has fixed that day. Um, and the course to that day is exactly what God ordained. Is that not your understanding of typical Calvinism? And again, I know you're not a Calvinist, but do you, do you understand quote unquote Calvinism differently than that? Um, I don't read, I haven't in the past read systematic theology. Um, trying to answer such questions, trying to, so what I'm saying is perhaps I'm reading a little bit more generously than, than some other, other people would. Um, so I, I, I don't want to, I don't even want to begin to say what other people believe. Um, I, I'm and at the end of the day, I'm really not interested. I don't really like, I appreciate James White. Um, I don't really care. Right. Like maybe he's helpful. Maybe he's not, I don't know. It's not really my concern. Um, when I sat down to write out this, as I told you, when I sat down to write out this definition of sovereignty, which I think we all agreed with, um, I didn't, I didn't go to Wayne Grudem. I didn't go to Norman Geisler. I went to my Bible. Um, I, you know, I, I didn't read my entire Bible. I had a couple of days. So I sat down, started finding verses that I felt talked about God's sovereignty. And I gave you the list, Joe. Um, it's, it's not extensive. And I started putting things into buckets. Well, this is talking about God being sovereign uh, based upon the fact that he's a creator. This is talking about God's sovereignty in that he cannot be opposed. This is talking about God's sovereignty in that he has ultimate ability um, to, to do whatever, whatever he chooses to do. And so I wrote out a definition because I don't really ultimately care. Um, I'm not driven by whatever happens to be the loudest yeah. voice. I've tried to read the Institutes. It's a great cure for insomnia. I've gotten a few <laughs> chapters in. Uh, it's, yeah. I find it boring. Um, yeah. For the mo but but Joe, remember I found Norman Geisler a bit boring, right? Yep. Um So, uh, which is insane to me. I, I find Norman Geisler I, to be. Uh, I imagine just you do stimulating reading. Um, I love. I uh, he's uh, he's he's still, I think, my favorite uh, theologian to read. Um, how would you? And, and, and again, I you know the the point of this, Eric, you were very careful. None of us are trying to pick a fight with anybody. Um, the the point of trying to clarify these things is just to say what are, what are people actually saying. Um, because as I'm listening to you, Greg, it sounds like where you appeal to the mystery, the part that you don't know is how it could be that God knows, but you affirm that he does because the Bible affirms that he does. God knows. Um, how does he know, especially if there are abilities for things to go differently? That's the part you say, I don't know. He's smarter than me and he knows, and I don't know how he knows, but he knows. Okay. That's fair. How would you interpret this first sentence from, from the, the Westminster confession that I read? It's not the first sentence from the confession, but that I read that God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. That doesn't seem like there's any openness to me. Is that an ungenerous reading in your view? Yeah. Um, I have never spent any time that I can recall interacting with the Westminster Confession. What you've read there, um, I, I wouldn't jump on board with right away. But Yeah, I'll freely admit, I like but, your definition way more than I like this one. Yeah, so, so I. I mean, I mean yeah. listen, um, I, if I were to pick a, a confession, I would, I'd pick the second London Baptist. Now I will tell you, I, as I first episode, right. I've, I've had people tell me, I don't, I'm not allowed in their camp 
because I disagree again, anthropopathism um, told you that the first episode. Um, and this goes back to my, I don't really have a dog in the Calvinist Arminian fight. Um, and, and so I've told you what I believe. I, I have no intention of, of trying to answer for or defend everything that somebody who, who I happen to share more of a camp than with than, than others. I, I, I don't have any hope of or desire to try to answer for their positions. Yeah. No, I, you know, the, the point of this obviously is for us to try and speak for ourselves. I'm, I'm bringing some of these things up because, you know, Eric, my, my experience, like I said, with yours is similar. Um, most of the Calvinists that I talk to, uh, they are more of the Westminster confession type. Um, then I, you know, I don't, I read the second London, uh, Baptist confession. Um, let's see God's decree. Well, you know, here's a, here's, uh, God's decree from the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, 1689. God hath decreed in himself from all eternity by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably all things whatsoever comes to pass. I mean, that is the, that's the same language as the Westminster Confession. Mm -hmm. Yet so is thereby, uh, is God neither the author of sin, nor hath fellowship with any therein, nor is violence offered to the will of the creature, nor yet is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established in which appears his wisdom in, in disposing all things and power and faithfulness in accomplishing his degree. Um, although God knoweth whatsoever may or can come to pass upon all supposed conditions, yet hath he not decreed anything because he foresaw it as future or as that which would come to pass upon such conditions. My historical understanding might be wrong, um, but the arguments between uh, Calvin and Arminius was not that God had unchangeably decreed things and that there wasn't, um, certainly that there was no openness, but that God either looked down the corridors of time and saw the free choices that humans would make so that they were still responsible for it, um, or whether or not God determined those choices um, in advance. And I think both of those are, are problematic um, and, and run into difficulties, which again, cause us to move around. Eric, I think you said it well, it causes us to move around where the mystery is. Because um, everybody appeals to mystery at some point. None of us has the mind of God fully. We're responsible, you know, to try and rightly and faithfully um, understand what God has revealed. I tend to agree with you, Eric, especially on these things. When God says that he's grieved, that means that he's grieved. It doesn't mean that he's, oh, it's interesting that God says he's grieved. That means he's not We're grieved. all in agreement together. As, yeah, I, so we as, all I, as I said, I argued yeah. against, I mean, you asked, what, second, first or second episode, you asked, where do I have disagreement? Right there. Right there. So, you know, and again, I'm not trying to put you on the spot. I just, so Second London Baptist Confession has basically the exact same language. Um, would you then say that this is also another area? Or, I mean, and again, maybe you need more time yeah, to look I, at yeah, it. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to read it for myself. I mean, because I heard some language in there that is going against what you say Calvinists believe, right? This whatever has or may or whatever will or may. So, so even there, I hear some openness to the idea that there would be. Um, some possibility for different paths. So, so, so I, yeah. I, I think we the all, explanation. We, go ahead. No, go ahead. No, I was going to say the explanation. I, you know, I think to the the theologians that I've read, uh, Norman Geisler talks about these uh, these conditional statements. Eric, like you were bringing up, is that God knows all actual and then um, non actual possibilities, potential. and yeah, potential possibilities. But in his mind. 
because he has unchangeably decreed them, it's only the actual ones that uh, are real. That's not to say that, and he, he does know whatsoever could or could come to pass, but what does come to pass is what God knows and what he decreed. Um, and so decrees, sovereignties, providence, all these doctrines tend to run together. Um, and again, London Baptist Confession also cites Ephesians 1.11, although it puts uh, Isaiah 46.10 before it in this case. Um, and so, you know, Greg, by all means, I, I'm not trying to, you know, do gotcha or something. I just, uh, I was curious to look that up and the, the language is very similar. So if we all think that there is a possibility that things could be different, um, in what sense then are, are you not an open theologian? Because open theologians say, well, things could be different. Um, it kind of does in some regard, um, relegate God to being a good guesser or opens the possibility that perhaps God could be wrong or that perhaps God could be thwarted. Um, this would go against the definitions that both you guys, uh, you know, affirmed at the beginning. No purpose of God's can be thwarted. Um, and so if he hasn't unchangeably decreed everything and caused everything to be exactly as he ordains, if he is angry because things are going contrary to his will, is that not a, in what sense is that then a possibility? How could God have things happen that he doesn't want to happen, things that would actually genuinely make him angry if he is in fact sovereign? I would make a distinction between will and desire. Now, the word can mean the same thing, kind of like in, in John 6.39, where it says it's not God's will that he should even lose one. The word will there seems to mean desire, not sovereign decree. But um, there are things that God desires that are not going to happen. Uh, for example, 1 Timothy 2.4 says it's God's will or God's desire that all men should be saved. But we know that not all men are going to be saved. Um, so I think we need to make a distinction between his desire and what he has unconditionally decreed. There are things that will happen that man cannot change at all. But then I think God leaves room uh, for man to make decisions that ultimately determine certain aspects of the future. But foreknowing and predetermining are two very different things. And I this is the analogy that I usually use. When a, when a weatherman gives a forecast and he says it's going to rain on Tuesday and it rains on Tuesday. The forecast is not what caused it to rain. It rained because the storm cloud came through. And likewise, when God uh, speaks about certain things in the future, it's not necessarily because he's predetermined those things. It's because he simply foreknows they're going to happen. And the question is, how does he foreknow? Well, the Bible doesn't really say. Uh, the Bible doesn't give us a, uh, a clear answer to that. Sometimes it'll, you know, God will say, like in Deuteronomy 31, I know what you're going to do because I know what you're disposed to do. I know what you're inclined to do. Other times God says, I, I know this is going to happen because I'm going to bring it to pass. Those are two, two different things. So there, there, I, don't, I don't deny mystery. There is absolutely mystery involved. The Bible does not reveal everything about God. It reveals plenty, but it doesn't reveal everything. So there's certainly mysteries. Um, I don't want to take up too much time with this, but uh, Joe, you had said um, you're talking about openness, uh, openness theology. And I think, as as Greg Boyd has said, um, open theism is really not even a maybe the best way to describe, best term to use. It's more open futurism. And it's it, it kind of the idea that, you know, the, the future is is open even to God. God doesn't even know 
certain things about the future. I would deny that. I think that God, yeah, I would I would reject that part also. Yeah, I I believe that God has exhaustive foreknowledge of the future. How exactly He has that knowledge, I I really I don't know for sure. Um, but but again, I think God foreknows all the future, but it's not because He has predetermined all of the future. And uh, and as far as things could things turn out differently. One example, um, this is 1 Samuel 13, verse uh, 13. Samuel said to Saul, you have acted foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. And forever actually is probably not the best word to use. The Hebrew word's aulam, and aulam doesn't always mean forever. It can just mean, in this case, it means just a longer period of time. But now your kingdom shall not endure. Okay, so in other words, Samuel says to Saul, things could have turned out differently for you. If, if you would have obeyed God, your kingdom would have lasted longer. Your dynasty would have endured longer. But because you disobeyed God, now God is taking the kingdom from you and giving it to uh, David. Uh, and there are dozens and dozens of texts where God and prophets um, say those things to people as if things really could have turned out differently. Um, so I, I just I don't believe that the future is fixed in the sense that it is unconditionally uh, predetermined by God from eternity past. Does God foreknow what people will choose to do? Yes, I believe He does. But foreknowing and, and predetermining are not the same thing. Yeah. So Greg, I don't know if you have thoughts. I, I have a lot of, but that I'd like to maybe tag onto that. But I'm curious no, to ahead. hear your. No, go ahead. Well, I don't want to, I don't want to, we might move us past the moment. So, um, no, it's, um, yeah, sorry. I, I was actually in the middle of trying to look up because again, as we're still, I, I think we're still kind of, we haven't come to a common understanding of, of what it means to will. And so, um, yeah. just, just trying to look that up and, you know, pulled out my, my handy dandy gigantic bag here. And, um, <laughs> and so, the first entry I found for will, and so I'm not saying that every instance of to will something in the Bible comes from Thaleo, but um, the entries here is to to have a desire for something. Interestingly enough, there's the word desire. Yep. To, to wish to have, to desire, to want. Uh, second entry, to have something in mind for oneself of purpose, of resolve, will, wish, want. Um, the third entry is to take pleasure in uh, fourth to have an opinion to maintain. Um, and, and so as we're talking about this, and, and I don't think, you know, I would say that, that to have sovereignty um, would, would, would necessitate a will to have a desire for something. So again, I, um, it would be good if we, if we could operate on a common understanding of what, of what a will, what it means to, to will to, I know you don't like the desire language, but I, I am using the language that the Greek lexicon uses. So whatever. Well, some, of those, those... some of those are not inconsistent with what was said earlier. Yeah. It, it depends on how the word is being used. Like we already said, and some of those are, are consistent with what was already said. There's another Greek word, at least, um, for those who would want to look it up, uh, Thelo uh, is one. Bulomai is another uh, that is um, found in Scripture. Um, yeah, defining the will, I mean, that it's that aspect. Um, 
I think philosophy, you know, that's my background is in philosophy. You talked about, you know, what is it? What is a self or a, a person or an individual, someone who has intellect, emotions, a will. So am I my emotions? No. Am I my intellect? No. Am I my will? No. I am the, uh, the self is somehow this composite of these things. And um, so the will in some sense is the ability to um, direct our choices to enact, you know, to, to choose, to, to bring things to be. Um, and I think at the heart of our discussion is, again, am I, am I the, the, uh, am I the one who enforces my will or am I a, uh, a victim of my will? Does my will kind of, is it just a product of something that's outside of me or outs, you know, from conditions that became before me? And, um, as I've had other conversations with other people, you know, the, the, the question is if God made me this way, if he gave me this will, he gave me this intellect, he gave me these emotions, he gave me these circumstances, he started all the causes. Ultimately, everything I do, he's responsible for, not me. Whereas what I would want to preserve, not trying to say anything for you guys, what I would try to say is that God has given us a will, believers and unbelievers, and we are responsible for the exercise of that will. Um, and I think that's not an, I don't think that's a controversial statement. It's then how do I exercise that will? And that's where a lot of the disagreement has been based on the conversation today is just, you know, do I choose that which is my greatest desire or do I have some ability to choose in some other way? And I, I don't necessarily know the answer to that question. So if, unless I'm mischaracterizing our conversation, that, that seemed to be kind of where we were circling. Um, and I don't know that we're going to come to an agreement in this episode, um, maybe outside of it. Um, I do want to present you know, again, just as we're talking about this, you know, the last question that you had asked us, Eric, is how does our view of sovereignty affect our Christian life? Um, maybe we can, we can talk about that. And, um, I, uh, you know, I have a model. I I've thought about divine sovereignty and human freedom of the will probably more than any other issue. Um, it's something that has kept me awake more nights than, than any other issue, um, theological issue. Um, when I first became a Christian, it's something that I, you know, was very, very interested in engaging in. Um, I was studying at the, you know, in the philosophy department, I was an unbeliever. Uh, and then I, I was converted and still in the same philosophy department. And one of my professors, um, used these arguments. And again, he wasn't, you know, he's, this is a, a secular philosopher who denied all religion. So he wasn't coming from a Calvinistic background or whatever, but this was the issue that he used to say that, uh, Christian theism was completely, um, ridiculous. You know, it was, um, incoherent because, uh, you know, we have, we're basically materialistically caused, um, and, and that God causes everything. And so, you know, God is then angry about sin, but he's the cause of all this sin. And, and it was just, you know, like I said, I, that this was kind of my, my entryway into Christian theism was really in that environment. And, and so I've thought about these issues a lot. Um, and when I, started reading the Bible for myself, I was very interested, um, in, in seeing that, um, you know, God is angry about sin. Why, why would he be angry? Like, did he determine this? Did he cause these things to happen? Um, issues of knowledge, what, how does God know something? What does it mean to know? Um, I, I have answers that to me are satisfactory for these things. Um, I'm not sure that we have time to get into them today. Um, but I do at least want to ask this last question, you know, how does, how does your view of God's sovereignty affect your Christian life? Eric, that was the question you had for us. I think that's a great question. And maybe as we begin to wind this episode down, 
um, maybe we can just kind of end with that that fact. Uh, the, knowing that God is sovereign, um, which we all affirm, um, how does that affect your, you know, getting out of the realm of theoretical ideas and stuff? How does that actually affect your your walk with a sovereign God? Well, I mean, there are certain things we've talked about in the past that come much further down the list uh, in terms of importance. This one is up at the top of the list. Maybe not number one, but close to it. And the reason is because we're dealing with God's character. We're dealing with the, the very nature of the God we're supposed to be loving with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the question is, who is this God? And I'm not saying we could ever know God exhaustively, but I think we can know God correctly. I think, and I think we can know God correctly through his word. So we have to ask ourselves, what does the Bible say about God's character? How does he operate? And again, there are, I'm not saying there are no mysteries. Arminianism does not solve everything. Um, I still have questions in my mind and many of them. So I'm not claiming to have all the answers that, that would be a, that would be ridiculous. But, um, I ask myself, who is God? What is God like? And there are some people that believe that God causes every single thing that comes to pass. Uh, and, but, and yet somehow, according to the Westminster Confession of Faith, somehow he's not the author of evil. Now, what they mean by that, I have no idea. And I, I don't think they know either. Um, and they did appeal to mystery, I think. So that's, I respect that. Um, but, I, you know, I think we need to, I think we need to resist the temptation, and many Christians have given into this temptation. We need to resist the temptation to be influenced more by Greek philosophy than by the, than by the Bible. I, uh, Augustine, I know, was heavily influenced by Greek philosophy, and other other Christians have been too. And Greg, you said earlier you don't care what other people think. I do care. I do care because these people are are loud voices that are influencing the masses. And I, that, when I when I say I don't care, I mean I, I'm not trying to put myself in line with them. That's what I, I mean. Okay, do I do fair. I, I mean do I care what abortionists think? Well, yeah, I do, but that doesn't mean I'm I'm putting myself in their teeth. So, okay, that's please fair, understand fair me when I say I don't care. Like, yeah, I get it. I get it. Well, I it concerns me when Calvinists say. And Greg, again, this is not this is not you, but when they say like, you know, well, God, yeah, God's God's in control and God causes all things. God denies that in Scripture. Jeremiah thirty two thirty five. They built the high places of Baal that are in the valley of Ben Hinnom to cause their sons and their daughters to pass through the fire to Moloch, which I had not commanded them, nor had it entered my mind that they should do this abomination. To cause Judah to sin. He says, it didn't even enter my mind that they should do that. Now, that doesn't mean God didn't know about it. But what it means clearly is God didn't want this to happen. This was not something that God caused. He said, this, it didn't even enter my mind they should do this despicable thing. And God said earlier, I think it was in Deuteronomy 10, he hated a human sacrifice with a passion. So if, if, we're, if we're claiming that God it sovereignly decrees everything that comes to pass, well, then that says something about the nature of God. And if God says he didn't do that, well, then that, 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 that's a dilemma. That's a serious problem. I think we need to be led. And I realize other Christians, they, they, 
they will claim, yes, the Bible does say that God decrees everything and causes everything. Um, they'll say scripture supports that. I don't, I don't think it does. I think God, God himself denies it and other scriptures um, contradict it. Now, there's, there's a difference here, too, because not all Calvinists even agree on how this happens. There are some Calvinists who will say that God actively causes everything that comes to pass. God is the first cause of everything that comes to pass. Others would say, no, God, in a sense, has determined what people will do, but he allows them to make choices that are consistent with his will. I think, I think that's compatibilism. If, if I'm, and maybe, maybe I'm not quoting it perfectly, but um, basically, you, God does allow you to make choices, but you can only make the choices that God has willed you to make. Okay, so God God isn't actively causing you to make the choice, but you will make the choice that God wants you to make. But if you compare the two views, it's exactly the same thing. The, they both lead to the exact same conclusions. God is still the cause. Uh, things could not have turned out differently. And I, I just, I don't think it solves anything. I think that, uh, I think compatibilism is, uh, is, is, well, it's probably the better option. It's the better version of the view. But it's still, at the end of the day, it doesn't, it doesn't really fix anything. And more importantly, is it's not in line with Scripture, in my opinion. So I just think that— yeah, as, I, as I listen to you talk, Eric, you know, so often on these conversations, we have a hard time understanding what, what the other person who's actually sitting right in front of us speaking is trying to say, right? Like— you just misunderstood me saying that I don't care what those people think to mean like I can like in no way do I care. Um, so as you're sitting here arguing against what you think some other group is saying, I just can't help but go, man, I, I wish we had some instead of you. That is what they're saying, Greg. That is exactly that is exactly what they're saying. My now, I'm not saying is, that's all that that's, I'm not saying every single Christian in that camp. Uh, would agree with those two things, but that these are the common views. And to say that, well, you don't know that they're saying that. I absolutely do know that that's what they're saying, and that's the majority. And yet, I have you one miss of these a, two views. You have this omniscient, perfect un- grasp of their conversation, their argument. Yet you didn't understand what I meant sitting right in front of you when I said I don't care. I, y- your omniscience is strangely inconsistent. Greg, I am not at all claiming to be omniscient, and I have read these things in books. You and I are talking, and we're misunderstanding each other sometimes. That's very different than reading what someone says in a book and reading their commentary. I mean, that I, like I'm not. I don't think I'm misunderstanding. I think these my are the only, two. My only point, Eric, primary is views. You're setting Calvinism. up an argument and punching it in the nose without any opportunity for those brothers and sisters in Christ to offer clarification, which I find to be. Well, 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 Greg, if they were here, I would allow them to. But the fact is we're, we're discussing a topic in which these things are relevant. And that's why I'm bringing them up. I'm not, I'm not trying to say they're not, you know, I'm just going to say what I'm going to say and they're not allowed to say anything. No, if they were here, I would, I would give them the, the floor to, uh, to explain how they work all this out. And what I just described, at least the first one, or maybe maybe both of them are consistent with the Westminster Confession of Faith. That's basically what it's saying. God has sovereignly determined or decreed everything that comes to pass. 
Isn't, and there's no, is that there's not consistent no, with what I just said? Again, I'm not arguing for their argument. I'm saying, is there no way, no sense in which they could mean something that maybe you're not, like maybe they would want to clarify the sense or how they would mean it? Well, uh, possibly, but if if someone says, but fortunately, you're omniscient enough to know that that's not the case. If if God has, if they're saying God has said, or God has decreed everything that comes to pass, then I don't know that I need to bring them into the room and say, okay, well, do you really mean that that God, you know, determines everything that comes to pass? Because they've already said that's what the confession says, and so I, I mean. I don't know how, I, mean, I don't know, I guess don't my to, point is, I don't know how else to interpret that. I don't know even what that, what well, that, they would that's mean. That's a little bit more humble of a position to take anyways. What's that? To say, I I don't know, <laughs> if they mean it another way, I don't know what they mean. That's a more humble position than, no, I know exactly what their argument is. I've read their book. But listen, as a guy well, who's I mean, written so, at least one, some of them, written some one of them book, I have. No. At least I can say that, that could there, we don't always could there perfectly be, express it. Could there be Calvinists that would express it differently? Maybe there are. I, I'm not. I'm not saying there are none. What I'm saying is, I'm. I'm speaking. I'm describing what I believe the majority would say. Either it's God, full blown, actively determines everything that people do, or God determines what they do, but but in a way where He allows them to, to make choices, um, even though those choices that they make have to be consistent with His will. Okay, so that's. I mean. That's basically the two uh, the two popular views. Now, could there possibly be other views? Well, I guess there could, um, but I'm just I'm speaking. I'm describing the views that I think are the most the most common. So that's that's the way that I would say it. It is. Uh, I mean, we all acknowledge. I think that it, we're all capable of misunderstanding. Um, that also doesn't mean that we necessarily misunderstand. Um, Paragraph four on the the, the providence uh, of God from the Second London uh, or Second Baptist Confession of London, the sixteen eighty nine one says the Almighty power, unsearchable wisdom, and infinite goodness of God so far manifest themselves in His providence that His determinate counsel extendeth itself even to the first fall and all other sinful actions, both of angels and men, and that not by a bare permission, which also He most wisely and powerfully boundeth and otherwise ordereth and governeth in a manifold dispensation to his most holy ends. Yet, so, as their sinful sinfulness of their acts proceedeth only from the creatures and not from God, who being most holy and righteous, neither is nor can be the author or approver of sin. So, you know, I, I am just as capable as anybody else of misunderstanding, um, but it's these types of things that I'm like, I talk to Calvinist after Calvinist, read statement after statement that somehow says, God ordained unchangeably even the sinful acts of men, yet man is responsible for those. And to me, that causes a difficulty. And every Calvinist I've ever talked to that I, that I acknowledge that, they, you know, scoff at me. Um, Greg, I know you were upset at uh, Eric for scoffing. They scoff at me and say, uh, basically, you know, who are you, oh man, to, to question God? Um, to which my reply is not, not to be silly. But isn't even my questioning then ordained by him? And so now I'm being scoffed at by you um, because I was foreordained to unchangeably not understand this. And then in my foolishness and my, my you know, that's only my fault, even though it couldn't have been any other way. And so there is a, there is a, a, a clanging of this that 
popularly understood. And Greg, I appreciate that you, um, you know, do care, uh, in to the extent that, you know, these views do influence people. When I'm out witnessing, I hear this kind of stuff all the time. God just made me this way. It's that case, Sarah, Sarah, whatever will be, will be. It's a fatalistic view, like whatever it's just going to be, whatever it's going to be. And I've heard this not just outside on the streets. I've heard it in the church too. People just think I just, everything's going to be exactly the way it's going to be. Um, some people don't want to evangelize because everybody's just going to get saved. Whoever got it, you know, it wanted to be saved. Some people don't pray because what's the point of praying? People even ask those questions. What is the point of praying if God is just going to do whatever he's going to do? Um, so this is a very relevant topic. And it's, again, it's not just for Calvinists and Arminians. A lot of people, they don't study these things. They don't read through all these confessions. They don't, you know, they're not interested in that, but it does still affect them. Um, and so hopefully, you know, my answer how does God, my view of God's sovereignty uh, affect my Christian life? I, on one sense, take wonderful comfort in the fact that I don't believe that God is ever going to lose control. He will ultimately bring about all of his purposes, that even um, the sinful, wicked acts of human beings, myself included, that God is capable and able to work all things according to the counsel of his will. And then on the other side, I think that it's a great encouragement to say, well, God is sovereign and he expects us to do certain things and he is grieved when we don't. So we ought to obey him and we ought to exercise our will um, in obedience to what he has declared. Um, it's astonishing to me how often people who claim to have the highest view of sovereignty um, then somehow give a pass to themselves and to others who disobey what our sovereign God has commanded us to do. Um, God has sovereignly commanded us to go into all creation and preach the gospel to all of creation. And sometimes we just go, nah, because God just is going to do whatever he's going to do. Like, well, he's commanded us to do something. So I think that not only should we take comfort that God will work, um, but that we should also be encouraged to obey him and do what he says, because it is always good and right to obey him, uh, regardless of how uncomfortable that might make us uh, in the temporary. And so I, I would think that you guys would probably agree with both of those things, that we can take great comfort in God's sovereignty um, that we can trust that God is in control, that we can trust that um, ultimately things as, as far out of hand as they might seem to us, that God is not nervous in heaven, biting his fingernails, uh, wondering how things are going to turn out, but that he will, um, he will act, that the things that he's promised us in the future will come to pass, just like uh, he promised that the Messiah would come at exactly the right time and in the fullness of the time Christ came, exactly as predetermined by God. So our God is powerful and able to do that. Uh, but our obedience, to me anyway, does matter. And we should do something because I do think things that, uh, again, we will, not, we will not alter the end result to such a degree that God could ever lose or something. But um, I do think that our deeds matter. He, God uses passages like, you know, if we'll obey him, we'll live out the fullness of our days. Otherwise, I mean, even our very lives could be cut short, I think, if we, um, if we disobey him. And so to me, there is an openness in that regard, not that, not that God doesn't know or not that it catches God by surprise or not that it's, um, you know, outside of his sovereignty, but that, um, you know, I, I, I don't know. I think that there are different versions of my own lifetime that I could die sooner or longer based on um, what passages of scripture say, you know, obey me that you might live long in the land. Like you guys said, Israel, I think could have gone differently from them. So. Um, 
as we wind this down, I mean, you guys have anything final to add on how the, the view of sovereignty affects you? And, you know, we realize, look, it's best to let people speak for themselves. We can understand and hopefully we can understand. If we misunderstand, I don't want to stubbornly hold on to something. But um, I, I don't think Eric's what he's articulating. I don't think it's a straw man. I think many Calvinists would say, no, that's that is the view. Um, and unfortunately, we don't have anybody here to to advocate for that view. So we don't need to try and tear it down any further than simply I don't hold to that particular view of sovereignty. Obviously you don't either. It doesn't sound like you do either, Greg, but um, you know, I, I read through these things and that's seems to be exactly what they mean, that God ordains everything, even the sinful actions and the mystery is how we're responsible for it. I reject that part personally. Um, and maybe, maybe next time Mike is on, we can ask him some of these questions and uh, maybe he can, cause I think he does hold to this view, but I'll let him speak for himself. If that's wrong, forgive me, Micah, for uh, attributing something to you. Um, but I think we've had some of these. But you guys got anything else to add before we uh, sign off for this episode? No, I don't think so. Well, I know that no Christians have ever debated this before, so this may... If you're watching <laughs> we're this, treading this new may, territory, guys. Yeah, yeah we're um, voyaging where no man has gone before, uh, even though everybody's gone before this. Um, but it, I will admit, this is a very complex subject. And, and you know, I... When I said earlier that I don't think this is a mystery, I'm not saying that I understand every aspect of it. I'm just simply saying that I just I believe that we really do have free will. I believe man is responsible for his actions. You know, it's interesting in Romans 1, it says because of natural revelation and conscience, man is without excuse. And if man has no free will, then man has the best excuse he could possibly have. His excuse is, I couldn't do otherwise. I did all that I could do. I did the only things I could do. I did what I was programmed to do. Um, but the, the idea that man has, has no excuse implies that man can do otherwise. Man can give into or submit to this revelation and let this revelation lead him uh, to God. So I, I believe that that all people are responsible for their actions. Everybody's going to be judged someday, even Christians. We're all going to be judged someday. And on Judgment Day, no one's going to be able to say, God, you made me do it. God, you, you're the one that caused me to sin. You're, you're the one that at least you know, gave me a nature where that's all I could do is, is sin and, and whatever. Um, I, think, I, think, I think the idea that man has free will is exactly what makes God just in his punishments. When God punishes people, he punishes them uh, according to their deeds. Not according to deeds that he predetermined, but according to deeds that they caused uh, by, their, by their choices. So this is a, it's a, it's a very, pr really, this is a really practical doctrine. It's a practical uh, subject. It affects everybody on the face of the earth. And, um, and it affects God's character. In the way that we live, so I I believe it's very very important. Greg, Amen, Amen. Yeah. All right, well, yeah. brothers, why don't we go ahead and conclude uh, the the conversation here? You know, I kind of started off this episode by kicking it off to you, Eric, and you know, a little bit a uh, little bit tongue in cheek, but but it is true. I have heard this that many people think that Arminians don't care about the sovereignty of God. I hope that anybody who's watching maybe realizes that. I mean, clearly, Eric, uh, you know, you're our resident Arminian. You clearly very much care about the sovereignty of God. 
Um, and so it's probably unfair, just like it is to, to pigeonhole Calvinists, quote unquote, into some view, um, to think that uh, Arminians uh, also like don't care about uh, the sovereignty of God, I think is an unfair uh, mischaracterization that I hear. Um, you know, I, my, my eyes were first opened to that when I was reading through uh, Charles Wesley's journals, you know, because here's this classical Wesleyan Arminian who was talking about the sovereignty of God all the time. I'm like, wait, why is he talking about sovereignty? I thought he doesn't care about sovereignty, but he did. He cared about the sovereignty of God to a, a, a wonderfully great extent. Just like when I read George Whitfield, uh, his Cal more Calvinistic, uh, uh, you know, companion, um, he also talked about, you know, they used a lot of the same language about the sovereignty of God. Um, certainly how these things work out does change. And so, you know, I, I'll, I'll save some of my fuller thoughts maybe for our conversation down the road on foreknowledge um, or providence because it's related to this. Um, I think that somewhere along the lines, Calvinists, at least the ones that I talk to, in their attempt to try and hold God's sovereignty to the highest view, actually have settled for a view that's actually lower than what the scriptures um, declare. And um, I know that's quite a bold statement uh, and maybe even potentially offensive. I don't mean it to be so, um, but that's often, I think, what happens anytime we, um, you know, we, we go beyond what is said uh, and try and, you know, systematize to something that makes sense to us. Greg, you said it earlier, and I will affirm this as we're, uh, again, winding down, is that God's ways are, are so much higher than our ways. And so for me to try and put God into a box that makes sense to me of how he can know based on how I can know or how he can act based on how I act, or how his sovereignty could be based on my sovereignty. I see how impotent I am to, to affect so many things. God's not that way. He's, he's over everything. And so by trying to put him into a box of sovereignty that makes sense to us, um, that God, uh, would, we would avoid the excesses of open theology, of thinking that maybe God somehow could lose control, potentially, um, versus you know the idea that he has so ordained everything that now when he says he's grieved, he, he couldn't possibly mean that because everything is happening to the maximal extent of his glory. As with everything, the truth is, I think, somewhere in the middle. And I want to avoid swinging on the pendulum. But um, in all these conversations that have had uh, been had, this one today and otherwise, all of these things, they have their proof texts, you know? And so it's, a, it's of course, a massive topic and none of us expected to in less than two and a half hours, solve all of the issues. But uh, I was uh, interested in the conversation. I appreciated uh, hearing both of you guys. Um, and uh, to anybody uh, who was watching, we hope that you likewise were uh, edified, that um, this was uh, at least a stimulation to you to think more deeply about these things. And um, until we see you all again, uh, get equipped, obey your king, because he is the sovereign king of heaven and earth, and glorify your God.